Thank you for sitting your white ass down and listening to Filthy Armenian Adventures. Tonight, I am reintroducing an episode first aired about a year and a half ago, a listener favorite, but if you're new, you might have skipped it because it doesn't have a number. At the time, I wasn't numbering episodes that I did not record in the flesh. I was calling them special editions, but that was short-sighted because in many ways... This is a model filthy Armenian adventure. It's a character study, which pursues one of the key missions of my show, which is to unmask. Rip off the mask, melt it, chisel it down, pry it off with a crowbar. Masks can be fun, but if you leave them on too long, things can get itchy. To hunt for the truth in this apocalypse, I do my best to unmask the masks that my guests and I might not even remember we once put on. When I first encountered her, Monica had the least plausible of all masks, Mommy Milkers, a Russian-Armenian girl with giant boobs and right-wing politics and refined tastes in art from Baku. You're not allowed to be an Armenian girl, in Baku. But Monica turned out to be far more real than anyone suspected. And since we've had this conversation, she has started her own literary podcast with two other deep, brilliant ladies, Kate and Veronica, called The Temple of Friendship on Patreon. I was on episode two to discuss my sexual awakening via Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Last week... Monica appeared in the style section of the New York Times, donning the glorious red dress, the Scarlett O'Hara dress, that last week's guest designer Elena Velez debuted at her fashion ball, Tomorrow is Another Day. That dress has since been ordered by Madonna. Monica performed at my first live show, Los Angeles, A Reverie Under the Stars, and next Friday... At a secret masquerade ball I'll be hosting on the Las Vegas Strip, which only my patrons know about. She will be evoking and paying tribute to Marlena Dietrich. Some dark and terrible things have also happened since this episode first aired in the fall of 22. The war in Ukraine, which was then six months old, has dragged on and on with a body count exceeding Sasha Gray's wildest dreams. The ethnic cleansing of Artsakh by the government of Azerbaijan, which Monica escaped as a young girl, is now complete. After a final invasion this past September, there are no Armenians left in Artsakh. None. And the Republic of Armenia, the world's first Christian nation, appears helpless before threats of further invasion. And over and over, we tell ourselves, tomorrow is another day. But so is yesterday.
Hey everyone, it's your host Alec Mohibian with a quick note before we begin. Filthy Armenian Adventures is an interdimensional travel program that takes you deep into the cultural mysteries of our strange and interesting times. In search of truth, in search of gold, in search of lost friends and unsung heroes, in search of John Galt's motor. The show is supported entirely by patrons at patreon.com slash filthy Armenian. Patrons get access to twice as many adventures, including the most intimate and scandalous ones, plus regular 5 to 15 minute smoke break mini episodes on movies, shows, and topics of the urgent moment. Patrons also get first dibs on our next live event. The first two were a smash. It's very easy to keep filthy Armenian adventures alive. You can still listen to the premium feed on Apple or Spotify or your favorite app, and you can do so with the pride that you're putting a little bit of money where your soul is. More patrons means more landmarks, more hotspots, more secret locations and forbidden territories around the world, and the world that is Los Angeles, our apocalyptic headquarters. It means we'll be able to track down more enchanting figures in the landscape and dare them to abandon their masks. Patreon.com slash Filthy Armenian. Gracias for listening, and enjoy the show. You haven't left the house today. I worked from home and I rewatched. I, I watched Bohans, to be honest, on Friday when Garfield was over, but uh, I didn't finish it and I kind of went to sleep. Whatever, we were drunk. And then I rewatched it yesterday and it was so haunting. I couldn't sleep. And I'm still haunted by it. Like, I can't stop thinking about it. So I was just, you know, feeling really cozy. So I slept um, all day, worked, slept, and have not, yeah, have not left my house. Was I correct in um, identifying you as the central figure of that film? Um, I definitely could relate to her, uh, but she's more, like, I. there were moments where I felt like, it was parts of my life, but I also feel like she's more vulnerable and childlike and sweet. Whereas I'm, uh, I'm more strong-willed. So there's that, that would be the point of difference. Well, of course you're more strong-willed. You're not the same person. And also you're, yeah. you're a bit of a warrior and she 
she was sort of uh, more like a, you know, kind of just like this wandering doll. Um, she was like a human doll with like living in a yeah. Barbie house the constantly, you know, and like barely being able to move her legs without just falling over just like a Barbie doll. Yeah. And I also feel like uh, the movie was strangely, I would say, I wouldn't say it was feminist, but it did definitely highlight the fact that men in her life kind of ruined her, including her father, the absence of the father. It does have chaotic feminine element and also like doesn't take responsibility away from her insane mother. Uh, but at the same time, I just feel like, I just feel like, it was yeah it was it was very strangely feminist and also pro life probably one of the most pro life movies you said that before but i was shocked because those yeah. fetuses are haunting i saw i said it in the in the i i said it not only in the in the uh, blonde pill episode we did right after leaving the theater but i was whispering in their ears during the movie like this is the most pro life propaganda i have ever seen yeah. and it's effective propaganda because it's not it is not in any way verbalized. It's not yeah. in any way opinionized. It's just simply depicting the yeah. uh, visceral horror of having a life that is inside you uh, yeah. nullified and, and taken yeah. out of you because that's like yeah. your life. <laughs> yeah. And it also it, it affects your entire life. And I feel like after that abortion, she changes completely and you know, when she marries an athlete, um, you know, there's certain vulnerability in her that just did not exist before that. And her eyes got sadder, you know, it just, I feel like that changes the whole trajectory of the movie and her life as well. And I feel like it's much more effective than having like annoying Catholics on Twitter, calling it a baby murder and like actually turning people off by saying that. Well, yeah, because, because if you just, anytime you tell someone yeah anytime you 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 try to control somebody's like in, in literally their inner life <laughs> yeah like, like you're, they're not going to react in a positive manner and you and yeah. i just like you know they're so brutish and they're so they're so um vulgar and tasteless in their piety yeah. that it can do nothing but create create hostility to their ideas, which is why for the first time ever, we've all been saying like, we've had, we've had dark thoughts about Catholicism and Catholics after living in my case, 37 years without any such fucking thoughts. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm just like, holy yeah. shit. I am now looking at everything in a different light as it pertains to them because yeah. it's just like, there's this, there seems to be um, an, an, with, with, Catholicism in general, there seems to be this very undeserved yeah. sense of sense of uh, uh, like just you know rude authority, which is yeah. it's, it's not undeserved. And I mean, it's an old institution. So anything that's old and that's lasted a while has a uh, has something to you know something to claim yeah. for it. You know, I don't want to deny. I don't want to deny that at all. But that doesn't mean you twenty three year old convert from three months ago can suddenly start speaking ex-cathedra uh yeah. just like uh, you know just le letting them out like letting it rip on everyone you don't know what the fuck you're talking about you have no idea what life is and if yeah. religion for you is a meme or even yeah. an idea even an ideology it's not yeah. it's not the whole truth 
Like, it's just yeah. not. The whole truth is bigger than a meme, and it's bigger than an ideology, and it's bigger than your stupid little aesthetic fixation that you heard from Dasha six months ago. So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very negative thing that, you know, a lot in a way, a lot of converts are very uh, susceptible to because There's, they're so... They're also zealots. They are, oh, yeah. they try to, they're, I call converts, I don't know if I can say it, but they, they, they're basically like, like, you know, mulatto kids when they try to overcompensate for not being black enough by, by acting extra black, like Thomas Chatterton, Chatterton Williams talks about it in his book as well. Like he was trying to do more because he was trying to prove to everyone that he was black enough. The same thing with converts, they turn into zealots and they do things like a normal Catholic would not. Uh, you know, just be really annoying about being Catholic, talk about it nonstop, be constantly in your ear. I was on Trump Twitter since 2016. So I kind of knew they were annoying already because they kept always blaming all American problems on Protestants, saying, you know, bringing up those butch right. lesbian right, right, priests. Right, 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 right. And I was like, listen, Catholics are pretty, uh, you know, they're, they're pretty regularly advocate for open borders. Uh, there are a lot of Catholic chari charities that want to bring refugees. Fine. There's a long history of corruption within the Catholic Church, starting from like, I don't know, like it's been you know, even like if you take like Borgia family, right? It basically was like mob that got into Vatican and, you know, ruled with um, a lot of corruption. Uh, uh, you know, pedophile priests, you know, there are a lot of things that is wrong with Catholic Church. And instead of focusing on reforming it and making it better so you don't have a lip-start pope, they actually just project this superiority and look down on everybody who's not a Catholic, which is really annoying. And also, like, one point I would always make would be that every Protestant society is better run and a better place to live in than pretty much any Catholic society. Uh, I mean, Italy is nice. Spain is great. You know, I could go and like have vacations in Latin America, but if you want to have like a high quality of life, uh, be surrounded by people who have good work ethic and live in a high trust society, you probably would want to live in a Protestant country. Well, yeah, if you're uh, looking, like, the Catholic countries are really good for sex tourism. And, yeah. and, uh, but if you're looking to like, uh, you know, have a serious career or life, uh, it's, it's hard to do in one of those, except for France, I would say France is like the one exception, yeah. although it's, it's, it's so, you know, Fran the French have such an artistic perspective on their own, I think on all of their, their entire heritage really. So it's like, yeah. they're, it's like, it's kind of like, uh, you know, Armenians and Christianity too, in a way is like, yeah. because it's the first Christian nation, it's also the most. It's also the most like chill about, even though it's like you know we're we're orthodox. Uh, the Apostolic Church is very similar to the Eastern Orthodox Church in doctrine, yeah. but there's a certain wary, there's a certain world wariness about the way our Armenians do Christianity because it's been so long in the in the blood that yeah. and and it's been and there's been so long before they became Christian. There's yeah. a, such a long period of just being pagan and pre-Christian yeah. that like there's a certain like, you know, political uh, awareness of how, you know, don't get too fucking carried away um, with yeah. your and, you know, it, it, there's just a lot of other factors that play into it. But the countries that are that are the, the, the national versions of recent converts, especially Latin American ones, they're like the most yeah. lurid and the most uh, it, like they're the most 
wild with their Catholicism. I mean, in Mexico and so forth, it's like yeah. it's, it's like Halloween Catholicism there, you know. And they're um, not exactly trad either. Like the point that a lot of converts and um, you know, like a Sofrab and Vermeule, all of them make a point that once America embraced Catholicism as a state religion, uh, you know, we'll have like a trad society. They don't really like gays, but they're very anti-racist. They want they want to have open borders. But I'm like, if I look at Latin America and that those type those are the type of Catholics you want to bring to the United States, they're not exactly trad. You know, I mean, they do have like big large families, but you know, it's always a lot of them have children out of wedlock, uh, high divorce rates. You know, um, it's not like gays do not exist in Latin America. You know, so it's just it doesn't make sense, but they keep making that point over and over again. Uh, it's just yeah, I, I never understood uh, how that makes sense. Well, it's it's. I don't think they're trying to make sense. Um, I think that now I will say there is a difference between somebody in Europe was telling me this. Just actually in an episode that hasn't I haven't released yet, but I will in the future. Yeah. Somebody was telling me, well, you're, you know, uh, our Mexicans are Muslims and they are, and you know, Mexicans are Christian, but Muslims are Muslim, and that's a much bigger problem, and. Uh, that is true. Uh, that is actually true. Like that's not, we're not worried about, you know, yeah. we're not worried about a, a civilizational, uh, uh, uh insurgency, um, yeah. because, uh, because based on a, based on the Quran, you know, like, so there are, there is some truth to that overall, but if you're, if you're advocating for whatever policy based on your recently converted Christianity of any kind, yeah. What you're really just doing is like you're really just trying to re fit retrofit your newfound faith ideologically over everything, every problem in the world, and it doesn't work. It just yeah. doesn't work to sit there in New York at your at your editorial offices of Compact Magazine. God bless them. We have very good friends who write for Compact Magazine. By the way, Sorab is pro Armenian, so uh, yeah. I'm very kindly <laughs> disposed to Sorab. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and also he's Iranian, which is fine by me too. And, yeah. and, um, nothing against Sorab, we just disagree on bringing over on Catholicism and bringing over a lot of people who practice Catholicism. I, to, yeah. yeah. It just doesn't, it doesn't, it's not that it, it may, he may be, it's maybe wrong or right to, to, to think yeah. in that, in those terms. It's just not, there's so many other things you, before you get to whether there is a match religiously because religious religious affiliation does not necessarily influence social behavior in the uh, most immediate ways you know yeah and also a lot of uh, strangely enough a lot of mexicans or latin americans who move to the united states they become evangelical they convert from catholicism to something else it could be with the fact that we we were getting at least before like more of like uh castizos was high European admixture. They kind of could relate more to, um, you know, to Protestant, a Protestant religion. I don't know, but that was that was what I read recently. So his plan to like turn everybody into Catholic and have this, you know, trap Catholic utopia might not work, but uh, we'll see. There's no, there's no. People don't turn into trad anything. What they turn into is, yeah, basic bitch Americans. Uh, whether yeah. they're Armenian, whether they're Mexican, 
whoever yeah. they are, and it's a matter of time usually. It's like some people assimilate really fast because they're yeah. here immediately looking to succeed and they're not like they're not they're yeah. not just kind of like wandering around, you know? And they're but all and then everybody will become an itemized individual. And uh you can't escape that. Welbeck understands that. It's just like it's something that is inescapable. I also am of the opinion that liberalism will triumph. Not liberalism in the sense of like you know, being a Democrat or whatever, but just like liberalism in general, individualism, yeah. you know, liberal democracy, uh, all of that will triumph. And we're kind of seeing that even like on a uh, geopolitical scale with like Russia conflict, a lot of people put their hopes into Russia thinking this will disrupt Western hegemony. Like, will this will disrupt Western liberalism? We'll have like, you know, multipolar world, like no more global homo. And it's like, no, America is still winning on every front, you know. I never all- thought that. I never thought that Russia was going to be the, the path for the future. I always thought that that was the funniest um yeah. Online meme, honestly, because people are people here, people on people who live eternally online are so are so desperate for some sort of a binary that they can fall on one side of. Yeah. And in this case, the binary was Vladimir Putin as Mr. <laughs> Mr. PFP me monarch meme guy who's yeah. going to ride in and and restore uh, traditional values to the world. And it's just like, do you know anything about Russia? A. Yeah. Do you know anything about how like Russia's influence actually works on neighboring countries? B. Do you know yeah. anything about Vladimir P- Putin? C. And and D. What the fuck are you talking about? It's just it's it's yeah. always been it's always been fake. Putin is a cynical operator, like the yeah. KGB man that he has always been. Um, I don't want to get into a whole fucking thing about Putin, but it's it's obviously relevant yeah. how he's handled the Armenia situation completely self-interestedly with no desire whatsoever to to limit the yeah. amount of land that Azerbaijan has been grabbing left and right um a Muslim communist people versus a the first Christian nation who supposedly is is tied to the hip to Russia and Armenia yeah so like miss me with all the Putin uh with all the Putin bullshit he's just another like yeah. he's just another self selfish tyrant, which you know they're all going to be selfish. I'm not like holding that against him, and I'm not saying that he's yeah. like this crazy evil guy, uh, either. Because I'm, I think he's just Russian, but um, yeah. and Russians are just Ru- Russian. Russia is a great ancient nation, but in as I said before, they're not particularly known for their governance. Like it's not yeah. a. That's not where their genius lies. Their governance has been an absolute hot fucking mess forever, no matter what system they've had. Capitalist, communist, tsarist. There have been some good tsars. They've been brutally yeah. deposed, and then it's, it's, chaos ensues. Like, it's it's a crazy... Russians have, yeah, Russians have collectivist national psyche, which is which is something that China also shares, like, has in common with Russians. In Russia case, Russia is also capable of producing great composers, directors, uh scientists writers, artists science. inventors of course everything yeah so it's it's a, this uh you know this dilemma that they have because they do have european spirit because they're capable of giving the world people like dostoevsky but they're completely incapable of self-governance they all they always need like a tyrant to rule over them and i'm i'm half russian on my mom's side and my mom probably was a stronger influence on me growing up uh because she just she's very impressive woman overall and she was like 14 years older than my dad so i do identify with that side of my family strongly but i never thought 
that Russian way of life was an answer to the problems of Western liberalism. Russia is not particularly trad. It has incredibly high abortion rates. There's the third um, fastest growing HIV rate in the world. And that's mostly like a lot of it is women too. Um, as you know, a lot of men are alcoholics. Only 6% of the population goes to church. So when people were telling me I was rooting for Russia to succeed because I am Russian and I, uh, you know, call it ethnic narcissism, but like on my mom's side, I'm invested in Russian society a little bit at least. But like when somebody who is like an American born and raised here thinks that Russia, Ukraine situation will somehow disrupt Western hegemony and make it better for them to live here in America, I, I never understood that. And I thought it was like a weird online LARP that never made sense to me. Like Russia is not particularly trad. I don't think that multipolar world was Russia and China as America's adversaries would work as well because I'm of the opinion that America does a lot of stupid stuff when it's forced to compete with liberal adversaries you know because you kind of you try to prove harder how liberal you are as opposed to like somebody like some country like China or Russia or whatever I think if we don't have those adversaries, we're like, a, you know, so, uh, superpower, whatever, we can try to focus on internal affairs, figure out what we're doing wrong. And there are a lot of wrong internally. So I'll give you that. But Russia was never an answer. And what, it ha what happened with Armenia, too, which is like, Russia always said, Armenia is our little brother, you know, we're going to take care of you, we're going to protect you. One time that Armenia is seriously attacked by this Shia nation uh, can i call them uh, can you bleep that out you have a right to uh wrestle with what you want to call them because you're from there and i want to get i want to get into that kind of step by step by the way but yeah. you can finish your thought and then i want to get to the origins of of yeah. your story yeah so like the nation of they're basically north korea and we'll get into that because i grew up there and like incredibly corrupt uh filled with anyways incredibly corrupt uh, muslim dictatorship i mean they're they're somewhat secular compared to like let's say saudi arabia but it's still a shia country and you can't protect your like little brother your ally somebody you're you promised to protect in that situation you know it also makes russia look bad on a global stage because why would anybody want to align themselves with russia if it doesn't protect its allies um you know, it will actually make people gravitate towards the West more. Yeah, well. especially since, especially since um, the you know, and it's and so you know, we need to also kind of provide people who really know nothing about this issue with like the background of this of of this issue. Um, and I'm going to try to do that. It's really hard to do sometimes. Uh, yeah. Basically, you know, Azerbaijan became part. Azerbaijan is a Turkic. Azerbaijanis are Turkic people. They're not the same exactly as Turks from Turkey. Yeah. They're considered brothers, but they're like, from what I, the, the comparison I've been told is kind of like Russians and other Slavic people, uh, you know, like let's say Bulgarians and Russians. That's the yeah. kind of connection. Um, but Turkey considers it one nation, two states. So yeah. they're brothers. Uh, they were part of, they became part of the Soviet Union, as did Eastern Armenia. And um, unlike Turkey, of course, uh, Armenia yeah. got shafted there as well. That's another story. Uh, and they, and they've been, so they've been, you know, living under communism, which of course means a more secular society than any other, yeah. than a similar Muslim countries, much like the other 
Turkic countries living under communism. Um, and they, they're they basically, since the Armenian genocide, at, in various parts of, in, in cities where there were both Azerbaijanis and Armenians, there were attempts at, they, they were kind of getting in on the act a little bit. Uh, yeah. Uh, with, in terms of trying to liquidate Armenians, and there were conflicts that, that were spread out. The the main, that, that was spread out over the last century. Uh, yeah. The main focus of this became the territory of what Armenians call Artsakh and what yeah. uh, is Rus- known in Russian and by everyone else as Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, this is a territory within that, this is a territory that's been occupied by Armenians for thousands of years. It yeah. was about 70, during the Soviet period, it Stalin decided to, for as part of his you know divide and conquer strategy ethnically, Stalin basically placed it within Soviet Azerbaijan as a independent uh, oblast, as a as like an autonomous region within Azerbaijan. It was about 75 percent Armenian, twenty five percent Azerbaijani. That territory. Mm-hmm. He sim- he did a similar thing with 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 an Azer- uh, with a mostly Azeri territory called Nakhichevan. Uh, in in Armenia, um, so in the in when as the Soviet Union started to tremble and crumble, largely actually a, lo- a major domino in that being the solidarity protest in Armenia for the Armenians in Nagorno Karabakh who were being who were being oppressed. Well, who who were first of all there were there were kind of there were pogroms against Armenians in. Sumgait, which is a area, which is a city yeah. in in Azerbaijan, in I think that was in 1988, and it continued yeah. in Baku, like brutal pogroms, it flared yeah. out. I don't know what set the Azeris off again to try to kill Armenians. Maybe it was a sense that you know the the Soviet Union is crumbling, the economy is going crazy, and it's back to the old blame blame whoever seems to be doing better. Um, I'm not going to get into that, but it was these pogroms that set off a desire for. Nagorno-Karabakh and Armenia to unite, um, since our Nagorno-Karabakh was majority Armenian. What happens is the Soviet Union f- crumbles in 1991, and yeah. all the various Soviet countries hold elections to declare their independence. Um, Armenia does it, Azerbaijan does it. Before even Azerbaijan did it, Nagorno-Karabakh, auton- like as an autonomous region, also conducted an election to declare itself independent. And of course, the election was in favor of independence. And of course, Azerbaijan, feeling that Nagorno-Karabakh, because Stalin put it there, put it within its borders, belongs to Azerbaijan, they refused to acknowledge this this independence. And then a war broke out for Mm -hmm. Nagorno-Karabakh to remain independent. The war lasted for three years and an Armenia, Armenians in, of Karabakh, Armenians from all over the world were part of that, fought it, fought in that war. It was like the yeah. most, it's it's the craziest story ever. I mean, people who went to UCLA with my parents were part, were key figures in that war. Um, like people who literally were just going to UCLA as a kid in the eighties, uh, ended up being uh, military heroes in that war. Um, and in that war, Armenia prevailed in 1994, drove out all the remaining Azerbaijanis who were living there. And and also took over like a few surrounding regions. And since 1994, but the victory was not recognized by the world because they considered it a, they considered it an occupied territory within Azerbaijan. 
mm-hmm. Stalin's design <laughs> remained the standard for the world. So since then, there have been negotiate, you know, pe- there, there, there have been peace negotiations that went nowhere. Armenia was unable to, and Azerbaijan and Armenia were unable to reach a deal. Azerbaijan, meanwhile, in 1999 or 98, discovers a shit ton of oil on their land. Yeah. Armenia is a very poor country with no water, no oil, no very little of anything. And, um, uh, you know, Armenia is also suffering from basically having their border shut off from Turkey and Azerbaijan this whole time due to the, due to the conflict. And despite there being a, a committee set up by the, called the uh, OSCE Minsk group, uh, mediated by the US, France, and Russia to reach a settlement. Despite that being the case, despite that the, the mantra of that committee being that there's no military solution to this conflict, in the fall of 2020, I guess probably during Mercury, Mercury rec, uh, microwave, as you say, um, in the fall of 2020, apparently egged on by Turkey and by Erdogan in Turkey, um, and mass with a massively uh, well-equipped and and uh, uh, military and with with a ton of mercenaries from Syria, Azerbaijan launched a war to to take Karabakh back, and they and Armenia was completely <laughs> underprepared. And uh, it, it was an absolute nightmare situ- situation where after 44 days, they reacquired most of it, um, pretty much all of it, except for the capital, Stepanagert. Um, there was a ceasefire signed. It was a brutal, brutal war. Every day there were new videos of Azerbaijanis beheading uh, elder elderly people in villages that they took over. Uh, committing various war crimes, absolutely, you know, violating every international law when it comes to battle, terrorizing the Armenian people everywhere. They're they're very good at that. They're very good at that. And they also were completely, they were support, they were effectively supported in this attack by the following parties, everyone. Um, Only words were issued to caution that there's no military solution effectively based on the kind of passivity of Russia, of of the Western powers, of Europe, of the UK, uh, based on Israel supplying them daily with new drones made in Israel. Uh, Israel is an ally of Azerbaijan because they use Azerbaijan as a way to spy on Iran and as a way to like, you know, as as a chess piece against Iran. Yeah. So, and, and based on the, 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 you know, registered lobbying agents of Azerbaijan in the United States, such as those who work for the Heritage Foundation and the Hudson Institute. I won't even name them because their names will like set my temperature at a level I don't want it to get to. Yeah, Christians who um, support um, mongrel Shia nation dictatorship against a first Christian nation deserve the hottest pits of hell. Like well, I'm just not to, even gonna like miss one miss my world worth Yeah. Right now. now just 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 to clarify the situation because everyone in America is a is is such a pro- self-proclaimed defender of democracy. Yeah. Armenia, even before this revolution, they were far more democratic than Azerbaijan. Armenia in twenty eighteen had a held a peaceful democratic revolution where they uh without spilling a drop of blood uh deposed their kind of post Soviet oligarch leader who there there basically hadn't been a free and fair election in Armenia since the very first one, uh, first one after they left the Soviet Union, it had been a corrupt and, you know, typically, very typically post-Soviet kind of run country. And it was suffering a great deal because of that. 
There was a peaceful democratic revolution in 2018, uh, which you can learn about and experience in a very kind of, I think, spiritually uplifting way if you watched a documentary, I Am Not Alone, which is on all the platforms. Um, so Armenia had become a fully democratic country, free speech, everything. I mean, they still had, you know, their battles with corruption and stuff to figure out. But overall, it was a very, became a very like Western friendly, but without being anti-Russia, uh, yeah. Western friendly country, democratic, uh, peaceful in, in all, by all metrics. I mean, meanwhile, Azerbaijan has been run by the same family since Soviet times, the Aliyev family. Yeah. The vice president is his wife. It is ranked like among the very like the very most corrupt authoritarian dictatorships in the world. Uh, mm -hmm. Their policy, they're now because they're friendly with Israel and ostensibly friendly with the U.S. A, a lot of this is a lot of this just is overlooked because hey, if they're a partner, you know they're not they're they're a partner in the region and and especially since Iran is such an enemy, they're kind of seen as a. Uh, balance to Iran, as I was saying earlier. So there, the fact that they're a dictatorship becomes overlooked by the by the by the super democracy horny Western uh, Western elites. Yeah. Nevertheless, they are a brutal dictatorship. One reason why their people are so miserable and so bloodthirsty is that they live under a brutal dictatorship where everything is kind of basically stolen at the state level. Um, they're they're very, despite having all that oil. Their GDP yeah. is terrible. There's a there's a ton of people living in poverty. Um, the one way that they maintain power in Azerbaijan, the Aliyev family, is by the most uh, passionate, cartoonish kind of state-stoked racial hatred that presently exists in the entire world against Armenians. Like this is people not a fucking joke. People don't know how joke. bad it is. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about you growing up in a world where literally every day people are yeah. are like singing pledges of allegiance to murder Armenians. It was so I was born in 92. That was after Baku pogroms. And, you know, as a kid, I didn't know I didn't I didn't have an identity. I was just like a kid like everybody else. Oh, yeah. And my family, my dad was Armenian. My mom was Russian, but they moved around a lot. And I remember that. Um, you know, sometimes my mom would see somebody and hide her face, you know, or my dad, like they didn't want people to recognize them for some reason. And I couldn't understand why. And, uh, so, you know, I just kind of, I didn't have an explanation for it. They didn't want to give me one when I was little because, you know, kids talk. So if they told me I was Armenian, I could have said, said it to somebody, you know, the words gets out, you get in trouble. So, one thing I'll tell you about Azerbaijan that is absolutely insane is that they are like North Korea. Like Aliyev family has been in power forever. Uh, it was Haydar before and then his son and his wife was vice president. They basically worship that man like people in North Korea worship Kim Jong-un. It's, it's insane. They celebrate his birthday. His birthday is a national holiday. Um, it's just the level of worship is absolutely insane. And he's not even a monarch. He's just like somebody who ruled over the country and it was a dictator for a while. And basically every day you turn on the TV and you hear how Armenians are dogs, subhuman scum. They're not really like, you know, they're not really people. They all deserve to be annihilated. And that's told to children at a, like, at a school level. Um, to the point where, 
I don't know if you remember the Ramdel Safarov situation where an Armenian was killed in his. Oh, I remember. Sleep. Yeah, I remember it very well. Tell tell the story because people need to know this. <laughs> so it was it was it was a NATO training base, military yeah, base in Hungary. In Hungary, yeah. yeah. And I was like twelve or thirteen years old, so I was still a kid, but I still had an understanding of what was morally right and wrong because I guess my parents raised me with it. So. Um, I was in so Ramil Safarov was one of the trainees, so was an Armenian soldier that was training as well. And Ramil, because he had such an ethnic hatred of Armenians that is basically fed to us as we people since birth, that he walks into his dorm and butchers him with an with no, it was it was it was an axe. He axes nice. him and he sleep repeatedly repeatedly while the man was sleeping that's like the most cowardly thing anybody could do and any normal person was understanding of what's right and wrong would call it disgusting terrible tragic not in azerbaijan the probably the most eye-opening thing for me was going back to school the next day after finding out about it and seeing everyone i grew up with Kids that I went to school with since I was five telling me how Ramil was a hero. And I was like, what are you talking about? He murdered him in his sleep. That's how brainwashed they are. Like it was. Well, like, he got, so he got this guy who brutally axed a, a fellow trainee. And it's like, you know, it's, this is one of these like NATO, like it's like a, it's like a conference for, for soldiers from all over to come and get their little, you know, it's like a camp. This is like a friendly yeah. international camp for people to just kind of come and learn some military tactics and stuff by NATO, whatever. So the guy who, being an Azerbaijani and wanting to be a hero, decided he would brutally axe an Armenian in his sleep. They love going, they love axing and they love cutting off throats and stuff. Um, yeah. They're, they're really into that. Uh, and they, they love doing it to women, grandmothers, which they did a lot during Armenian pogroms. I'm sorry if I sound a little bit angry about it, but because, I, you know, my family had to live through it. Um, and they like doing it to sleeping people. Anybody who cannot defend themselves. They, so th this guy does, does this, commits this crime. Hungary, which I don't know if Viktor Orban was in power yet at the time, but, you know, based Orban, Hungary can suck my ass too because uh, because Hungary ex extradites him to Azerbaijan under the under the promise that they, he would be prosecuted, blah, blah, blah. He gets back to Azerbaijan. He is not only not prosecuted, he is literally declared a national hero and given his own apartment and whatever other rewards by Ilan yeah. Aliyev. A guy he was welcomed as a hero, basically. I was there. I saw it. He was welcomed as a hero. And, um, you know, everybody on national television was saying that what he did was so hero heroic. He was just, you know, the talk of the day. When, how old were you when you first became aware that you had enough of a infidel blood coursing through your veins that you... Yeah were public enemy number one in your own hometown. When did that first settle in? I was about seven or eight, and I had a classmate who was, there are a lot of like, so Azerbaijan is pretty, like there are a lot of Russians, Jews, Ar there are Armenians who live in the shadows, obviously. But there was this Russian kid that I was friendly with, and then we were fighting like 
you know, just as kids do. And he goes, if you don't stop, I'll tell everybody that you're Armenian. And I was like, what do you mean? Uh, you know, I, like, I was like, he's like, my grandmother knows your grandmother. You're Armenian. I'll tell everyone. And I, I, I was shocked. Went back to my mom. I was like, well, why is he saying this? And she's like, we need to have a conversation. So, um, you know, we kind of sat down. She explained to me that my dad is Armenian and that he took my mom's last name and I have her last name as well. And I cannot tell that about, I can I cannot tell about it to anyone because, you know, you're, you're basically like putting target on your back if you're telling anybody that you're Armenian. And that was, as a kid, I you know, it was weird, surprising. I couldn't understand it fully. But then once I was like, I kept watching TV and seeing what they're saying about pretty much half of my family, uh, family tree, I realized how scary that was. Um, and then around that time, actually, no, what? Yeah. Around that time, it was eight, seven. Um, we had a neighbor and my, my parents were at work. And my Armenian grandmother was home because she, she used to like to, you know, read stories to me or whatever. Uh, it was around like four or 5 PM. Somebody knocks on the door. We open the door. Um, this like large Azari guy from Nagorno Karabakh goes, uh, can I come in? Um, sure. He walks in and my grandma looks scared, but I was, I was little, so I didn't understand what was going on. And then, uh, they start arguing. Um, and he starts throwing all our stuff from the window. My grandmother tries to stop him. He hits her once, hits her twice, um, hits her on the head as well. And I, like, I'm, I'm, I'm a little kid. I'm screaming. I'm trying to stop him. I'm like, what are you doing? He didn't touch me. I'm not going to like, you know, I'm not going to say that he, he probably, uh, even like monster like him would not touch a little kid, but he did repeatedly hit my grandma, threw all our stuff from the window and left. Um, my parents got home, my, you know, everybody's shocked. And, but I didn't get an explanation that that was because she was Armenian then. I only got it when my classmate actually directly told it to my face. It was just like, oh, some crazy man like broke into an apartment and like wanted to hurt your grandmother. My grandmother went blind in like, in like a year after that. So we still can't explain if it was that or if it was diabetes or whatnot. But that's, that was the first thing. And then my classmate told me and I knew who I was. And I knew that I had to live in the shadow pretty much for the entirety of my life in Azerbaijan, which I did. And the only time I actually could speak out was when that Ramil Safarov situation happened because despite the fact that I had to hide, I could not ignore how people were celebrating a brutal, disgusting murderer as a hero because they have no understanding of what's morally right or what's morally wrong. Did you, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm wondering if you had absorbed any of the self, like any hate, any of that hatred yourself. I mean, like if you, were you someone who did it, like, did you have any feelings about Armenians such that when you found out you might be one, you yeah. revolted at this idea or did you just like, how did that news land on you individually? Like, were you like, fuck, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not one of those uh, cockroaches. Or were you just kind of confused? I'm, uh, that's what I'm, that's what I'm wondering because it's very easy to absorb self-hatred that way. I was confused. 
I was confused. And also like, I had to do a lot of research on my own. Like, you know, it was like, because they keep, they kept calling Hoj- what happened to Hoja Lee, uh, a genocide. And I was oh, like, yeah, and they, yeah. And they call like, they show like horrific images and they're like, this is what Armenians did to us. You know, a lot of like, uh, brutality porn. They kind of want to overwhelm you with imagery to the point where you like, you're filled with hatred. Um, and I had to fight through it. In the beginning, I was resisting the idea of being an Armenian. I also identified with Russian side of my family because, okay, so when I was born, every Armenian church that they had in Baku was burned to the ground. I could not get baptized in an Armenian church. I had to get baptized in a Russian church. Um, I did not. I don't. I did not speak any Armenian because obviously, you know, you couldn't learn Armenian. So everybody kind of spoke Russian. I did resist the idea of being Armenian. I'm not going to lie to you. I I was like, I, I, I can't look what they did. like Because they kept saying how terrible Armenians are on a daily basis. But then I started doing my research. I, you know, found out about Armenian genocide. I learned more about what actually happened in Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, through, like, forums. The reason why I'm so into Twitter, because I was on forums a lot as a kid. That's where I could get information about things. Like, Russian forums, where they talked about the conflicts, like, more neutral sources of information where I could actually learn what happened. And then I actually developed strong ethnic hatred of Azeris to the point where... What? Well, how old were you when you reached that conclusion? About about 12, 13, that's when Ramil Safarov situation happened. And yeah. I was like, I have, I do not want to be like ever in this country. I, I need to get out as soon as possible. Everybody I knew since I was a kid is telling me that this is morally good. And I knew it wasn't. And then, you know, I was trying to find every way to get out. We were trying, like, I, I wanted to move to Russia. And then I was like, I, I, I can, I can maybe find a way to move to United States. And when I was 18 years old, my Armenian grandmother, whom I loved and who went blind from that beating, um, she she had really bad diabetes. So her leg, I don't want to give graphic details, but she was basically like rotting from the outside. Mm-hmm. My parents sent me away and they could not take her to a hospital. She was the only one we couldn't get fake papers for, for whatever reason. And no hospital in Azerbaijan would take her. And they were so afraid that they're going to be found out that she was just like running away in the house. Jesus. So let me step back with another one more time to ask about the in your your father and your relationship with him because he's the Armenian one as well as the grandmother. Yeah. Obviously, do you have a grandfather too from his side, or he was not in the picture? He no, the grandfather died by died, the time. Okay. Like he died very young. So like I had I just had a grandmother. So let's talk about daddy for a moment. Uh what was your relationship with him like and what was his way of disc- I mean, what was his way of conveying the Armenian fact to you? So my dad is actually so I feel like everything that happened with Armenians is one of the reasons why my parents stayed together because my mom was 14 years older than my dad. She met him after she had a divorce from her first husband and um, it was supposed to be like a fling and then she got pregnant. Um, And I, and you know, 
and like that happened right after you know Baku pogroms, and she helped him through it. So they stayed together, and I think that kind of like drew them so close together because she was willing to protect him and she was willing to be there for him. I had good relationship with my dad. I uh, love him and respect him so much. He was not very willing to, um, like, he wanted to protect me. They obviously wanted to protect me as much as, as they could. And as a kid, they didn't want to tell me much about what it meant to be Armenian because they didn't want me to develop strong feelings about it because we were still there. And uh, it was just, like, me, like, slowly getting information out of them, me watching television and seeing how depraved everything was and how, like, it's basically like full of lies and then me doing my own research that brought me to this point where I basically hated everything about my surroundings, hated everything about Azeris, wanted to get out as much as possible and um, didn't want to be there. And what did you, and, and did they, what was his reality? Like how did they, how did they handle your, your desire to get the hell out? Were they understanding of it? They were trying to get out too. They were trying to get out. But don't forget, like my family lost pretty much everything after, like, especially my dad's side, they were wealthy. Uh, you know, my dad was uh, teaching history at a university level. So they lost a lot of money. They lost a lot of wealth and they moved around because they had to sell property. They had to sell a lot of gold, whatever. But they were trying to get out. And my dad is actually also in Russia right now. They're no longer together because, you know, age difference, whatever. And the daughter was out of the picture, too. Uh, but he, he did get out to Russia. And I got out earlier than them because I found a way to move to the United States. And, uh, yeah, and I stayed here. But um, they, 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 they supported me in my desires. It was just hard to move. You know, it was hard to move out of, uh, it was hard to get a visa. It was hard to get a way to move, especially if you don't don't have that much money. You know, they couldn't pay for my education in the United States. I had to find other ways to move. So, and, and, when, and before you leave, you've probably already developed not only the desire to get the hell away, yeah. and not only this moral outrage at Azerbaijani society, but you've also developed ambitions. I mean, what, what did you want to be? before at this at this time you're a girl who's coming into puberty you're you're like all of this is happening as you come into puberty yeah. which is crazy to me but yeah i mean so, female okay. puberty in general is crazy to me let alone discovering you're armenian let alone discovering that your entire nation wants to want, would like you to be dead at the same time huh. like that's a huge onslaught that's a huge yeah. menstrual uh, typhoon tycoon ty yeah. ty what is it called? i typhoon? was filled with yeah. anger i was filled with anger i really wanted to get out I found a way to move to the United States back. So back in Azerbaijan, you know, I actually graduated, at, you know, I settled my class. I got into oil and gas production engineering program because obviously what else to do in Azerbaijan? I was like around 17 years old. I uh, was the only woman in the class, uh, hated it. Um, and I was like, I don't want to do this. I want to go to the United States and I want to be an actress weird but i was also as a kid i was obsessed with movies i watched sala when i was 12 years old i you know just did you like, like it uh, were you like that's literally me 
<laughs> uh, yeah, so like there were certain scenes when I felt like a disgust, but like now I can appreciate Pasolini and how he shot it as a detached observer. There's some directors who really enjoy the violence they're portraying, like they're showing on the screen. Pasolini manages to detach himself from it and it's beautiful and it's just uh, amazing. As a kid, I was disgusted at certain scenes, but um, I still wanted to watch it. And I remember my mom walking in. She kind of shook her head and she walked out. Um, <laughs> she well, wanted that's me where, to remain But she person. let you watch it. That's the crazy yeah. thing. She let you watch that movie. She 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 knew that I had like uh, interest in movies, but she also wanted me to remain a virgin. Weird, but like she thought like by letting me to like you know really be into my interests, which were movies and jazz, she would keep me from hooking up with boys, which actually worked for a while. You, that is funny. Yeah, usually it's the other way around. Usually the it's the it's the boys like me who develop an interest in movies and jazz, and that and that interest keeps them from hooking up for a while. That was my that was my experience, but. <laughs> Uh, so you, you, yeah, you're one of the only women I've ever met, one of the very few, whose yeah. opinions about movies and film dire and directors, like you know, art movies, I mean, are yeah. actually their own and not yeah. something that they that they just swiped from the back pocket of an ex boyfriend. Yes, or Red Scare. That's or, what Red, or Red Scare, of course. Yeah, <laughs> that's the late. Well, yeah. Red Scare is now the surrogate boyfriend of every girl in New York. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's for sure. Um, I like, like I said, I really liked forums. I developed an interest in forums because I wanted to find out about my identity, um, and you know, just like to learn more about what was meant to be Armenian and like what happened during the conflict and have the tr truer story of what happened. But also that that's how I got into movies and that's how I learned about Fellini and Pasolini and Visconti and uh, Antonioni and, you know, all those great Italian directors. I remember falling in love with Brando at the age of 10 when I watched Shoot Car Named Desire and him coming down the stairs screaming Stella. And that was probably, that's what probably marked my sexual awakening. But yeah, loved movies early on. But I also like, as as a teenager, I was horny, so I would like pick an actor I had, had a crush on and watched all his movies. Have you ever done that? Um, I haven't done it by actor. I've done it. I do it by director. Uh, I guess I'm because I'm a I'm I'm a I'm a auteur minded person. As well, yeah. And by the way, I had a very similar experience with Marlon Brando and Streetcar Named Desire. That that was a those biceps were a kind of assault on my psyche at it before I was ever prepared to understand. It was a bit of a weird, uh, it was a bit of a weird spectacle to me. I think I saw it when I was like 18. Um, yeah. so, you know, and as, and as, as, as trusted listeners know, the, the idea that, that they, that Brando's biceps, uh, we're going to prefigure some kind of an orientational truth about me. Where it was still four years away at eighteen, and 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 so those biceps, just it's specifically the biceps, because obviously he's he's a ha he's really good looking, and obviously yeah, yada yada yada. There's all kinds of good looking people that I've been admiring, you know, from the beginning of my uh, awareness of 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 human beauty. But it's yeah. the biceps that was just like that's the thing you're looking at, and then of course at the same the same time. Yeah. Before or after that movie is the first time I watched Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Now, oh, the Cat oh. on a Hot Tin Roof involves Elizabeth Taylor at her most beautiful of all time. 
Yeah. But there's someone else that I'm paying more attention to in that movie. <laughs> and Paul that person is probably the hottest. Like, okay, so the thing about Brando that I will say is the unpredictability factor. When you watch him on screen, especially like in Street Fighter and Desire, that's when he's like raw and animalistic. And you never know if he's going to hit you or kiss you. Yeah, right. Because yeah. he's like an animal, like he's like a cage animal, and you don't know what to expect or reaction you're gonna get it, get out of him. That's that was the hottest thing for me in Brando oh. in that particular movie, and that kind of like that kind of stays with him until uh, last time in Paris, because there's also this factor of like not knowing what he's gonna do next because he's so raw. With yeah. Paul Newman is just like it's unbelievable beauty i've never seen face that beautiful in my entire life no, it's like literally it's like a, it's like literally an ancient statue coming to life and like yes. talking and moving like in the fucking caesar's palace the caesar's uh, forum shops except like with full color and human body movement and everything and it's like is this how is he real yeah he's a how is he real you know it's funny with marlon brando in in streetcar i remember yeah. the constant critique I would hear about that or not critique but just the way it's kind of written about by historians and by critics is is that in in the play Stanley yeah. Kowalski first of all in the play Stanley Kowalski is definitively not the main character N neither is he in the movie but he's more yeah. central in the movie because because Brando just eats up the screen uh like yeah. those chicken bones you know in that scene with the chicken with the fried chicken yeah. where he's like, fucking eating and throwing the bones all over the fucking place yeah yeah which is another good scene. And, and, but in the play, it, many people made a point about how, about how, you know, I guess this is a somewhat feministical point about how uh, Stanley's supposed to be much more of an, like a, a hideous animal and not this yeah. hot, gorgeous guy. He's just more like this utter, he's like the id, the masculine id, a beast, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, anybody who thinks that Streetcar Named Desire is better off without. The, without the beauty of Brando grafted on to the beastliness of Stanley yeah. Kowalski is out of their fucking mind. <laughs> and also Tennessee Williams, basically his female characters is himself. Yeah, so they're all him, yeah. They're all him. So do you think he was imagining somebody, somebody hideous in that scenario? I don't think definitely so. Definitely not. And yeah. Definitely not. I definitely thought he was not. imagining like a brutal working class... Uh, like like working class brute, very handsome but uncivilized. Somebody you want to get raped by, yeah. um, as as a queen that Tennessee Williams was, um, and I feel like that's completely what I would imagine Stanley Kowalski to be. But also, Brando changed acting in that one movie because you can see like Vivian Lee, great actress, love her, but it's more of an old style of acting as. And then just he walks in, trained by Stella Adler, uh, raw, natural, unpredictable, and it's, it takes your breath away, you know? And anybody who says that it doesn't or it was unnecessary is lying to you because it was like he like basically takes all the attention away from anybody on the screen towards himself. And, you know, relevant to what I was saying, like I didn't, I didn't do the thing where I watch an, a every, an actor's every single movie. But 
because I was because I was auteur susceptible because I I, I did want to watch the auteurs and in this case to me the auteur is not Stan is not Elia Kazan, it's it's, it's Tennessee. Tennessee Williams. So yeah. you can make the case that Tennessee Williams groomed me from beyond the grave by these <laughs> fucking by his plays and movies because I went directly I you know Streetcar I'm pretty sure Streetcar I'd read I'd read Glass Menagerie in high school yeah. uh, but it was just like okay it's a high school play you know it's like in high school yeah. nothing I read in high school made an impact on me because I was yeah. so already I was so literary and up my own ass I did not take yeah. anything seriously that I had to be forced to read so yeah. it wasn't until college and on my own and like you know I'm given that I that I that I discovered Tennessee Williams after having heard his name bouncing around also I had some friends old way older friends who liked him mm -hmm. Barbara Brandon yeah. being one of them and and so I watched that and I'm like holy shit so I I did watch every single movie made of a Tennessee Williams play Every single yeah. one, pr pretty much back to back to back to back to back. And the two that absolutely, absolutely seized my sexual imagination are Streetcar and, and Cat in a Hot Tin Roof. Although Sweet Bird of Youth is also hot because it has Paul Newman in it. Um, yeah. It's not nearly as good necessarily. It's actually pretty good. It's, I liked it. I have only seen it once. It's a bit of a shit show. Uh, yeah. I did like it. The, the, the movie that I actually liked the most as an like just as an emotional thing, and this might be, I don't know if this holds up or not. If because I haven't seen it in quite a long time, maybe fifteen years, but I saw I saw it several times in a short amount of time space, is not the night of the iguana, with um, which is not sexual to me at all because I'm not into Richard Burton in that way. He's too much of a he's too much of a withered old, uh, you know, a drunken disaster. But and you are a brother homosexual, not a father homosexual. Exactly, I'm not a daddy. I'm not a daddy issues. I'm a brother issues. So <laughs> and so, uh, so yeah. So he wasn't. That was that wasn't the factor there. Plus, it's Ava Gardner. It's him. It's Deborah Kerr. All of them are wonderful in this. I I love. I the last. I will not disavow it until I have to see it again. I I don't think I'll disavow it. I think it's great. I think the old man in it is great. I think the poetic flourishes that everyone makes fun of in the movie. I always thought they were great and very touching. I really like Night of the Iguana, nineteen sixty one. Um, I forget who directed it at the moment. I think it was John Huston. Who I also really? watched every single movie, but I'm pretty sure it was John Huston. But don't hold me to that. Um, I'll have to look it up. Um, I think it was him, though. So anyway, I see all of the. All, I see everything. Everything. It was for me. It was like I followed as you followed Brando. Yeah. I followed. Ten, I followed Tennessee Williams, and Tennessee Williams gave me the full panorama of male beauty yeah. in the process. <laughs> Did you, did you like the Roman Spring of Mrs. Stone? I did because it made me. It actually felt like. Um, it had a certain Hitchcockian feeling to it, even though it's a Tennessee Williams story. Um, yeah. And I did like it. And that was also hot. Yeah, that was another one that, and that was something I watched very late in the Tennessee Williams run. I saw, I watched that. I'll tell you where I watched that. I mm -hmm. watched that while I was living in a basement in Washington, D.C. Oh, and, no. Yeah. And where the ghosts of the uh of the where the where the ghosts of uh of incorrect sexuality were really starting to make them breathing on my neck i saw that and that was a really that was yeah. really affecting that was like did you see the one the older one was warren beauty beauty and oh, that's uh, the only one i've seen i saw the new one it was olivia martinez who oh, i haven't even i haven't even seen that one is it good it's really good. Yes. Oh, I have to see. It. I only seen. I've only seen the Warren Beatty one. And Warren Beatty was a nice piece of ass. I mean, let's be honest. Before yeah. he became like a total liptard. Even then, he's still handsome. Even Did now he he's from Brando? 
Does he what? He fucked Brando, right? I didn't know that Warren Beatty fucked men, but uh, it, from what I understand, every all you had to do is like, if you crossed the street in Hollywood one time, you'd manage to fuck Brando. I don't know. <laughs> Brando got fucked by everyone, apparently, according to Quincy Jones. Yeah, he was he was a horny motherfucker. But yeah, the thing was, uh, Cat on a Hudson Roof is that that kind of frustrates me because it was obvious that the reason why he couldn't have sex with Elizabeth um, Taylor's character was because he was gay. And the reason why he had so much frustration over what she did because he was in love with his teammate. Yeah. That's not clear in the movie because obviously they couldn't do it. And Kazan told Tennessee Williams that they had to take that part off. I wish <laughs> that was there and I wish it was honest because it would make more sense. Okay, but imagine still- how retarded it is that the movie I saw at 18, which first planted the seed, is yeah. the very movie where that ends with a fake heterosexual awakening. Yeah. And and the guy apparently finally forgetting about his his brother on the football team that he had a crush yeah. on, that he had a crush on and that this then makes me think that yeah. oh there's nothing there was nothing weird about there's nothing weird about being interested in Paul Newman's appearance in this movie. Look, he just it was just a matter it was just a it was just a mood to overcome just like he does in the movie. This literally, yeah. this literally happened. <laughs> Did you watch the documentary? Not yet. I have no. I haven't had the chance. The, the thing about Paul Newman that also makes him so attractive is that he was, as old Jewish men, incredibly insecure and very self-aware. So he talks about his sexuality, and he's like, "It was all an act. Like nobody who would meet me in person would think I was like the sexy person." And you kind of look at him and you're like, really? That's what you think about yourself? And um, Yeah, it's really amazing how people, how little most men know about their own attractiveness. It boggles the mind every time. Yeah, and he like he was completely unaware of it. The only time he mentions um, being attractive is when he talks about his Jewish faith and he was Jewish on his father's side and Hungarian on his mother's side, which kind of gave, the, gave him this beautiful appearance because he has like um slavic cheekbones jawline and then old world jewish eyelids and full lips it's just irresistible but in any case he talks about being jewish and he's like i also know that like you know i don't look like a typical jewish person and where would i have been if i look like golda meyer that's the only time he like gives positive feedback to, to his own appearance but it's fascinating how unaware he was of the effect he had on other people. And we all know your weakness for for the uh the partial go the 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 partial Jew partial goy. You're into that. <laughs> you're into yeah. the goy toy, the goy the oi goy toy, the half and half. You're into that that particular Yeah, like if you even if you watch Marilyn, like the only man who ever appreciated her intuitive intelligence was Arthur Miller, a Jew. Um and I feel like a lot of overtly sexualized but smart women love jewish men because because the culture is matriarchal they're capable of understanding you on a deeper level and also appreciating you on a deeper level as well um but physically i'm attracted to tall scandinavian types so that's a dilemma that is a dilemma which i'll get to shortly because i think (laughs) that that's where that's that's the the kind of the god that's the uh uh 
the Rubicon that we're kind of all facing right now. But I want to first kind of track, continue tracking your your footsteps. Dot 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 dot. Yeah. How did you finally get the hell out of Azerbaijan? So. I found a program that allowed you to study in the United States for the summer. So it was just like, you know, um, study abroad thing. I took the opportunity and I was like, mom, I'm probably not going to come back. She's like, fine, we're going to. And they were actually discovering a way to move to Russia. But Russia is not where I wanted to be. Like, I wanted to pursue an act, um, um, a career in Hollywood or something like that. I wanted to be in America. That's where I watched all the American movies. I identified with the culture. I wanted to be here. So I get here when I'm 19 in 2011. And uh, whatever, I, I get a little job working in a restaurant. I do my English classes. Um, then I met a boy. Um, who was also Jewish. Uh, mm-hmm. I cannot escape the Jews. They, was they he half or full? Was he a whole? Was he a half or full? This one. He he was Jewish on his mother's side. So ah, that's that's the yeah. Okay, you're always going for the hat. You're always going for the hat. There's a, there's a mixture. You're always going for you know. You're always hedging your bets. But okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But he was also like you know, you know whatever. He looked. Uh, he looked pretty like uh russian whatever yeah so we started dating um and then i had to go back and i told him my story i told him everything that happened to me and he was like i don't want you to go back i have feelings for you let's just figure something out so uh, and this is what city is this in is it's in new york new york you're in new york how old are you 19 years old you're 19 you fell in love with a jewish boy was he going to school with you or was he working at the salami factory no so okay so i i was renting a room was like two other girls and we had an, a like a fourth floor neighbor, like a Russian lady in her forties. She had a really young boyfriend and, um, she, Sounds familiar. Yeah. yeah. And she, the boyfriend had a friend and that's how we got introduced because we used to all to hang, like we used to all hang out at like each other's places, you know, drink, whatever. So I stayed, uh, in the United States, um, our marriage didn't last long, um, but uh, it wasn't a marriage of convenience. We really did love each other. It was just like a very young love, and you're kind of forced into certain situations. But um, you I got married so you could stay. So, but basically, it was it, it was a way of keeping you from leaving, going, having to go back. Yeah, 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 yeah. which is good. I mean, but that's we the also best reason to get married I could possibly think of. Yeah, go ahead. We also did love each other. It wasn't no, right. like a situation where we also did love each other. It was yeah, you just it just boosted the timeline considerably. Yeah, to- it would have taken like two or three years. It took us like much faster. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, so I do have a thing for Jews because I the only people I'm capable of forming emotional connection with are Jewish men. They do understand me better on a deep emotional level. It's just you know. Their other well, they know what it's like because well, Jewish men know what it's like in very deep way that to be terrorized uh, by society because in the form of their mothers. Um, I think that well, you know, I'm not I'm not talking about like the you know anti-Semitism. I mean, like literally being terrorized by their mothers, and I think that that's a good that is a real. Meta, that's a very that maps it's a very good parallel with being terrorized by your entire fucking country and all your teachers and your yeah. the, like the basically society is 
uh, society is sort of a collectivization of the female will of that nation. Yeah. yeah. And it's also like you are Jewish by mother. There's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a nagging mother, nagging Jewish mother element that is persistent in Jewish culture. Um, it's, it's a very matriarchal culture. It's basically a long house. Um, so they, I, they definitely are more in tune with the feminine side in themselves. And they also understand women better. I feel like, well, they're definitely more easily cucked. I mean, to use a, to use a word that neutrally, I mean, they're more, they're, they're, they're very loyal, relatively speaking. Um, they make good husbands. Yeah, they do. They're very loyal. They're very loyal. They're very easily, they're submissive to their wives. And despite being extremely horny, which is for the wife a good deal, um, <laughs> so you know you know if how it's to a shop. Horny wife. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you're a, exactly if you're a horny wife, which in, we know in your case, yeah, you are. I, you would be. I yeah. I'm 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 hypersexual, which is why a lot of like people that I meet call me like a spiritual male because I also enjoy porn. Right. And the way that I watch porn is different from most women because most women just want to be see themselves or somebody who look like themselves being in sexual scenarios. I watch a porn like a man. Like I look for, like I want to be, I want to see like maybe less attractive people who are actually enjoying what's happening, real orgasms, weird scenarios. Uh, You're judging it like Lenny Riefenstahl making a movie. Like you need, you want this, you want the actors to be performing at their best. You want to see reality. You want to see uh, urgency. You want every, you know, you're directing that. We're all kind of, I feel like with porn, we're all like men are like co-directors of every porno they watch. Cause like, you're trying to please me here. I'm not working. Yeah. I'm like, this is my vision, not yours. This is nobody else's vision, but mine. Yes. I don't exactly. want no fucking notes from the studio. I don't want no bullshit about the method. I need you to fucking, I need you to deliver the, the lines that I want you to deliver. And I want you to do it in the way I, I want you to do it. It's sound yeah. on. So, um, exactly. But I also like a lot of amateur stuff because I can actually see them being in the moment and enjoy. Oh what's yeah, going. that's the only good stuff. I think it's the only good stuff is the amateur stuff or like really vintage non-amateur stuff. But the the the, yeah. the modern day, I mean, some I think they've learned how to make it mimic ma- amateurism in a way that sometimes is okay. But yeah. I, I find it so fucking boring that I've almost like I almost rarely ever even look at porn anymore. But because also it's harder to find good amateur stuff as it used than it used to be like ten years ago. But one thing that I made me like so because again like when I was growing up in Azerbaijan I didn't I knew one gay guy and actually that was my first kiss. Uh, his uh-huh. name was Sam. Yeah, his name was Sam, and um, he was Russian, like had long blonde hair. And, you know, he was, he was actually like, he had to, you know, experience a lot of abuse as a gay person, especially in a place like Azerbaijan, but he was gorgeous. And, um, I was, I was like, I was a teenager and I told him I never had a kiss with a boy before. And I was going on a date and he's like, I'll teach you. So, um, that was my, actually my first kiss with a man was that guy. And he was Azerbaijani? No, he was Russian. Oh, he was Russian. Oh, my God. I mean, they can't even get one thing right, honest. They can't yeah. even produce it. Because I see these Azeri homosexuals online shilling That's for... They're terrible. Uh, oh, they're, they're the worst. I mean, gays make the worst 
like as we know from other examples, when gays but they get lip fillers, like gays in Azerbaijan, like women are supposed to get lip fillers. You don't get a lip filler, and it's not like a slight correction. They just get like they get like those um, Angelina Jolie type of lips that look ridiculous on a man. They, well, they're also the big, the worst pick. You know, growing up in an authoritarian country, if you're going to be a pick me. You're a yeah. bad, you're like a, you're bad news. You're like the worst. You know how like women yeah. are actually the most brutal, like military leaders in Soviet history when they're actually, you know, and like if they yeah. make it, they're going to be more brutal than the men. It's the same yeah. with the gay pick in these, in these, uh, in these authoritarian dictatorships. They, they're bad. They all look ridiculous. No, I, he wasn't, he wasn't as there. He was a blonde Russian boy. Oh, nice. Very beautiful. Um, yeah, that was my first kiss. And, but that that was the only gay person that I was friends with and I was exposed to because again, a lot of people are closeted. It's still Azerbaijan, you know, it's all just rumors. Oh, this person might be gay, but you never know. And they will never tell you. So the reason why I became so, um, interested in gay culture is because I discovered gay porn. And that's something that I can relate to Palia to. Mm -hmm. I was just fascinated by it. I was fascinated by porn was like, um, especially if like there's a hyper masculine guy who bottoms, there's something in my brain that like, just like, there's like a switch and I'm like, this is really hot because this guy probably never have to submit to anybody until we get to the sex. Mm -hmm. And, that was yeah and i still watch a lot of gay porn too um and that's how i got interested in gay culture and like wanted to explore and learn more about it and specifically you you watch it for the electric charge of seeing a a masculine man that perhaps you yourself can imagine yourself dominating uh yes yes i would i would say so and that that was one and that's why i'm attracted to certain type of men too um they're usually very good looking muscular big but somebody who is vulnerable enough to let me like dominate them yeah you can sense that they're willing to be to 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 kind of curdle up in the fetal position despite (laughs) how exactly exactly so that's that's what I that's what that's what drew me into gay culture. Then I moved to the United States, and I, actually, the funny thing, I arrived to New York on a day of Gay Pride. Um, <laughs> you were the you were the the queen of the parade on your first day. <laughs> yeah, I came here in June, and that was Gay Parade, and I. Uh, and You're like I, like I was- that Lana tweet. Lana's tweet about wanting to be have her casket paraded through the Gay Pride Parade when she dies. You were the opposite yeah. of that. You're fucking your arrival. Yeah, it was it was funny, and then uh, again, like um, Lana. I meant Lena, not Lana. <laughs> Lena yeah, Dunham. Yeah. <laughs> but again, my favorite directors have been like Pasolini is my favorite director ever, and he's gay. And the funny thing, fuck you, Tradcast, the best movie about Jesus has been made by a gay atheist. Um, It's not, I mean, I love Mel Gibson, but it's still, uh, it's still the movie by Pasolini that, you know, is the best movie ever made about Jesus Christ. Um, Yeah, I have, you know, I haven't actually even seen it yet, but I, but I will. Um, 
Uh, yeah, gospel uh, according to it's it's gorgeous. Saint Matthew, Every, gospel according to Saint Matthew. Yeah, every scene in that movie is like a Renaissance painting. It's fascinating. You can stop the movie at any point, and the imagery is just—it's amazing. It's gorgeous, and it's so interesting because he was gay, atheist, Marxist, for that matter. Yeah, and you know, art art transcends it all. Like it, you don't have to be Catholic to make a good movie about Jesus. You don't have to be anything to make a good movie about anything is my, yeah. is, I've always believed and it's like a, it's, it's this, um, it's a bit of a simplistic thing to say because yeah. the, 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 the way, when you look around, you look around at people who made, you know, like there's a lot of straight guys who've made movies about gay subject matter, including cru yeah. cruising by, William Friedkin. William Friedkin is as straight as they come. He's not even in that. He's not even, I mean, I, I'm saying that I don't really know, but I'm just guessing. He doesn't strike me as someone who's even within the Hollywood bisexual uh, uh, Overton window. I don't know what you call it. Venn diagram. Is it the movie with Al Pacino? Yeah, it's the one with Al Pacino. And um, it's really good. Uh, I just saw it recently thanks to, you know, thanks to knowing about it from Jack uh, from the of the Perfume Nationalist. I watched it whatever a year ago or something on my on my Criterion uh, network, and and it's really good and it's funny because Al Pacino is kind of like, uh, you know, I I kind of I I kind of compare my sexuality to Al Pacino in that movie if he had never found the killer and he kept on going to those clubs and just descending more and more into it, it was kind of like because being a being an undercover cop in nineteen eighty in in like nineteen eighty uh -huh. investigating. A gay sex, a gay sex murder crime underground was a lot like living in Washington D.C. in 2008, <laughs> uh, as Obama took over. So I, I had a very similar experience in my life. Another literally me situation. But yeah, there is often the case. It's often the case yeah. that you can see a, uh, you can see the fingerprints of someone of straight brain, you know, tackling a, a, a something missing. It's not even that they can't. It's not that there's not a lack of. It's not a lack of sympathy, empathy. It's not a lack of anything except just certain instinctive knowledge about the way things work. But I believe that in a, when you're in a frame framework of doing something great, no matter yeah. who you are, you can access those instincts. I mean, I've seen it over and over. Um, like we, me and Jack discussed Satyricon by Fellini, and Fellini was straight, like. You know, he was straight. He was married to a woman his entire life. He, you know, created some of the best female archetypes in cinema that ever existed. He understood women better than anybody. Um, but he also did movies about gay people, and he was actually really good at it. And that's one thing that people fail to understand, that you don't have to have the same identity as the subject that you are talking about or writing about or making a movie about. Um, like I don't think that not Nabokov was a pedophile or attracted to children. He no, was just able, to, and that takes a real artist and a but, real visionary yeah. to be able to understand the mind of somebody who would do that. But there's there are spiritual horseshoes that take very interesting routes. I think that's the, what I always look for, and or that's how I always feel it. Because in the case of, I mean, even Hitchcock made compelling depictions of homosexuality actually quite a bit um even in his own way uh he not he he intentionally made movies yeah. about homosexuals multiple times including most famously or most successfully strangers on a train strangers on yeah. a train is literally about a gay kind a kind of gay stalker obsession you know and and you and it's very well done 
and even a less successful movie rope is also yes. literally about a gay murder story uh and it's it's very i mean to me it's a pretty sexy movie uh, despite what despite the fact that it's not highly regarded um like mm. i the the horseshoe that brings hitchcock into the mind of a gay male murderer is simply hitchcock's own obsessive and in uh 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 unachievable obsession for blondes speaking of blondes so his his absolutely stifled um you know desperate desire for for the blonde beauties that he directed is a very 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 accessible route to gay male insanity very very accessible i think a very it makes yeah. total sense to me that he was able to artistically tap in and the same goes for uh who was the other person i had in mind with the horseshoe thing god damn it i'm i'm blue uh, I bl- i'm blanking but um oh nabokov so yeah from what i from i haven't read lolita and i haven't seen the movie still i've read pale fire which by the way is more shocking than lolita because pale yeah. fire is a is an absolute homosexual fantasia. Um, I, have you read pale fire? No, I have not. Put I've that on Lanita. your list. Put yeah. pale fire on your. I mean, it's not. It's not. Not a nothing. Nothing shocking about my. It's. It's. It's the. It's. It's. It's probably. It, it might be his greatest work. I think it's his greatest. I would guess it's his greatest work because it's really. Sh- it's also very unorthodoxly written. It starts with a very long poem, and then. Yeah. There's a commentary on the poem, and then there is there's an index of footnotes on the commentary, and it's like through that you the whole an entire epic is told. Um, yeah. But that's that access is also a very intensely accurate homosexual imagination. I think he was just yeah. a horny horny man, and if you're horny enough and you're honest yeah. about it, then yeah, you can access the other 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 kinds of of desperate desire um you can you can f- find empathy for the for the pedophile um for humbert humbert or whatever his name is and uh so you know it makes total sense to me now my question to you is yeah your relationship with the original the oj the original jew in america doesn't work out yeah. what happens what happens next with you romantically um yeah so <laughs> I had a period, so like I said, my mom was very uh, protective of my virginity, so I couldn't date that much. I had to be home by a certain time. So I get to America, I get into a relationship, fine. That doesn't work out. And then I just go completely off the rails. I was um, I was just like going to Miami every, every spring, uh, meeting boys, having a lot of sex. I dev- like I always had certain attraction to certain men and I would always go for that type and I would always approach it as a male too. Like I do have, I feel like to this day, I still have a fear of commitment or is um, another gay trait, another gay trait. Yeah. I do have a fear of commitment. And I also like, whenever I see that somebody wants to take it further, I find all the wrong things about them that would not make it work. Suddenly uh, you start reading those those interesting texts from Germany 19, circa 1934 after dating those <laughs> half-Jews. You certainly find those websites and you're like, hmm. Yeah, now I'm an anti-Semite. And I'm not, actually not. I love the Jews. Um, they're the only ones who actually like are capable of understanding me and relating to me. But in any case, 
then I dated, um, I did sex tourism year mostly, um, dated some Jews again in between, had a relationship with a man who was 20 years my senior. Wow. Yeah. And I don't think I've ever been loved that much by anyone ever. Um, and I feel like he was discovered, rediscovering his own sexuality with me because we would just do like incredibly wild stuff and he was really into it. And uh, it was beautiful and probably, I, like to this day, he messages me that he never loved anybody like he loved me, which is nice and great. And um, and it was this a case of you being afraid of commitment again or some other reason that fucked that one up or that? Yeah, it was, it, it was, it was that. Yeah, and, uh, like, and I kept thinking, at 20 years older, I am such a sexual person, he's going to be certain age, we're not going to be able to, you know, it was just things right. going through my head. You don't believe in crossing bridges when you get to them, you bring the bridges <laughs> to you, and then, yeah, you're like, this yeah, is a yeah. fucking long bridge, uh-oh. <laughs> is this the guy yeah. that, uh, who's the guy that you moved to West Hollywood for? That was a sweet. I told you I have a thing for Scandinavians. And yeah, he was, I met him at a club in New York. Um, it was just hyper masculine, covered in tattoos, very blonde. Uh, that's the, also the guy who told me about um, Arab prince in, in London who left home with five twinks. I don't know if you remember that, that story. The Arab Prince, who I, I vaguely remember, an Arab Prince casino twinks, but maybe well, no, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Recall he, he was he was a he was a he was a club host, and he told me how like Arabs come to clubs, spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, and then live with other men, right. twinks, whatever, yeah. and how he got offered to like he offered him to pay him a lot of money to have sex with him. And my guy said he refused. I don't buy it, but. You, know, you don't buy. You think he took some of that? You think he took some of that uh, Sultan money, huh? He had a very expensive watch. Mm. Mm. The kind of watch like, you only get as a gift. Yes, exactly. From an Arab prince. From an but OPEC. You know, feel, from an OPEC sort of uh, an OPEC sort of gift. Exactly. Yeah. But I also feel like I, if he knew me better, he would know I have no problem with bisexuals. I'm actually like I want a bisexual husband. So we can just share. Um, um, Man, yeah. Yeah, whatever. Rest of both but, worlds. Anyways, that was the guy that I moved to as Hollywood for. And then um, he actually betrayed my trust, whatever. <laughs> and how long were, so how long were you in WeHo and when? Because that means we could have crossed paths at some point, possibly in very compromising circumstances. Um, I was there for like, no, I wasn't there for long. I was there for a couple of months. Okay. And I was there in 2000. 14 okay <laughs> it could be for 2014 but i was there for a couple of months and I, that's actually that's how i got even more love for my people because he took me to this party and um we walk in it's somebody's penthouse a lot of cocaine on the table suspicious looking mexicans and i'm like where are we he's like those guys could be cartel but i'm not sure and i'm like hmm 
<laughs> and then I find like two guys standing in the corner. I was like, what are you guys, where are you guys from? And they're like, we're Armenians. Um, you know, we're just, we were invited to this party. And I was like, I'm Armenian too. And um, I honestly felt safer around those two guys than I felt around my Swedish boyfriend. What the hell were they doing there is my question though. What were two Armenians doing at this part cartel party? Uh, you remember? It, it was just, it was like a huge party. It was a lot of women, oh, a okay. lot of guys. And the, I, somebody told me that the main guy who threw the party was like a cartel type of guy. I'm not sure, but um, I just felt like I could trust those Armenians more than I could trust the Swedish boyfriend that I had. If you're lost in a David Lynch movie type of party in Hollywood, in your first two months in Hollywood, when you're a blonde bombshell with big boobs fresh off the boat you you probably are you probably would be comforted to find two armenians standing in the corner of that yes. of that scene i think <laughs> you know say what you will about our people there's much to say there's much to there's many annoying qualities but uh it, they yeah. do tend to they do tend to to serve as somewhat reliable buoys or lifesavers in a david lynch type of hollywood party nightmare um <laughs> For that sure. makes sense to me yeah. So okay, West Hollywood doesn't work out for you, sadly, yeah. because you could have you had your Eve Babbitts moment there. You had a a brief flash of of Eve Babbitts while she herself was in West Hollywood, still alive, although yeah. trapped in her apartment, never leaving it. Um, By the way, I want to say one thing is that I was introduced to Eve Babbitts because of you. Um, Obviously, like I grew up in a Russian literature. I came here. I read a lot of. Uh, I love reading fiction, but I also read a lot of history books, and um, I kept hearing about Eve from you. Yeah, and it just made me curious. And then I saw somebody post her book, um, "Long Days Fast Company," um, on Instagram, and I was like, I need to buy it. And then I found her book in the store in Union Square. And I became obsessed. I became absolutely fascinated by this woman who was so full of life. And, you know, like everybody, like we're all on Twitter. Everybody tries to be a main character. She was actually a main character. Uh, and there are not a lot of writers who are main characters because they always have to get into the psyche of somebody else or, you know, try to understand somebody else's um, life to write about it. She was a person who, whose life was so interesting and fascinating that she could write just about her life and still be impressive. And it's to her credit that she managed to do that, just that. I mean, you know, I, I know that a certain kind of old school literary sensibility, uh, including, yeah. including our friend Anna's, uh, yeah. kind of is kind of you know definitely you know always kind of like not knocks that's that sort of literary life down a few pegs because yeah. it's self-centered it's um it's it's you know auto it's just purely autobiographical and it and it flaunts the fact that fun was more important than work that's yeah. something that we all like if serious writers uh myself included uh, in my in my in terms of my you know delusions and I mean in terms of my in terms of my self regard I mean like yeah. serious writers are always like eh, this bitch party too much to be considered one of us and yeah. and but you know that and that is very much the opinion I probably would have had had I read her five years ago or or earlier yeah. 
but because I, but from the, the pandemic has, you know, really opened the gates of my sensibility, or I guess just my, I think, uh, uh, patience and, and acceptance of many different forms of life. And so reading Slow Days Fast Company was such a revelation because it was the first book I had ever read that actually yeah. accurately, truthfully captured the spirit of Los Angeles without without like gloomy affectation or yeah. or glitzy affectation. It has no affectation. It is purely a high-spirited um it's a high-spirited document of slow days fast company. Like it is a it is exactly the perfect title. It is I mean, you know, I am not someone who's been in very fast company most of my life. Um yeah. uh, I, you know, comes and goes, the fast company usually the it's more slow days than it is fast company, but Yeah. The, the her her ability that despite being in the most celebrity centric kind of life orbit you could possibly be in. I mean, not only to be sur surrounded by celebrities, but to be desired by all of them, all of yeah. them, and effortlessly and so. And be also Stravinsky's goddaughter at the Stravinsky, same time. Yeah, it started as a kid. Well, that's where that's where the seeds of Eve Babbitt's are watered. She's not just a she's not just a bombshell like any other any number of other ones you know who've slept around. Uh, she she grew up in L.A. She was Stravinsky's goddaughter. She had the traffic of Hollywood as regular guests in her house as a kid. And she went to Hollywood. It was hard to impress her. It was huh? just being, it was hard to impress her. Very hard to impress her. The people who impressed her most were, this is where I, this is where we really connect. Uh, this is where she, where, where even I connect because I'm not, I, I ain't nobody who's desired by famous people. I ain't nobody who's, who's being, who's ever lusted after as a teenager. Uh, I, I ain't nobody who, any of that shit, except the fact that I am a, a currently like this, this spiritual guardian of the city of Los Angeles and the idea of Los Angeles. But where we connect is how important high school was to her. High school is where her sensibility formed. High school is where she became a moral, uh, a, a moral warrior in a sense, because she, as you remember, I don't know yes. if you read that. It's it's in it's not in Eve's Bab. This is actually in Eve's Hollywood. Eve's Hollywood, yeah. Yeah, her her essay, The Chic, about Hollywood High, where my mother graduated yeah. from. Yes, Hollywood. when she defends sororities too. When she defended the sororities, that that's what won my heart. That like yeah. when I read that is like that's how I knew she's my kind of people. She defended the sororities whom she was not a part of. She was not quite cool enough yeah. at the time. Um, and then she also defended. She was also interested in the, I forget what they're called, but like the the kind of like the the uh, outs the the outcast to kids who would ditch school and go to the beach. I forget the name of the 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 clique that it was like that really captured. Yeah. And she also had a crush on a boy from that clique as well. Yeah, she was big time until she realized that they're ultimately losers, which you, yeah. which is another important thing to realize before it's too late. Yeah. You know, but you I also like that she was never part of a sorority. She she said she was always mid mid tier popular. Like she was never exactly. too popular. Yeah, but she could appreciate it, and she wasn't driven by jealousy. She was just appreciative of people who were cool enough. And um, she wanted to defend that it's 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 a very rare quality because a lot of people are driven by jealousy. Oh, big time, yeah. And and that's something that I also wish you know I also aspire to that kind of thing where I would like yeah. that I I would always hope that those who are more popular than I am who deserve it and deserve it 
will yeah. command my respect and admiration and not in any way bitterness. That's like that's something I've always aspired to uh, because I also, because we also, yeah. even I, I mean, because we do, ultimately we do, we, we care about the writing and, and, and yeah. if you want to be a good writer, you have to, you have to be able to grant people their dignity, their victories, their, their grace. You have to be able to do that and not, and not darken the vi not darken your vision of the world with your own disappointments. Is that why goodness. you don't like Orson Welles? No, I mean, I listen. I I simply was pointing. I was simply had a problem with him chimping out at Woody Allen. I was not. I don't. I I like Orson Welles, but there's something about Orson Welles that became an absolute self mourning, uh, maudlin blowhard in his later years. I mean, he did not have to become that enormous. He did not have to let go quite that bad. I think that he, I haven't, I'll be honest, I've, I know a lot about him, but I haven't like done an investi personal investigation, maybe I will, to really figure out for myself what went wrong with Orson Welles. I have all the borrowed theories and opinions but there's just something that smells to me about the way he absolutely decided to at that in 1970 whatever absolutely decided to shit all over Woody Allen because that's just not I get it I agree with what he said like every his critique is correct Woody Allen is neurotic uh that whole school of Woody Allen is is nebbishy in a, in a way that obviously from all the annoying New York Jewish types we know can totally become a major kind of problem culturally. Yeah. Um, if people just keep imitating that, I mean, it's a lot. A lot of the Chapo Brooklyn shit that we are annoyed by is a yeah. is a is a bad fermentation of Woody Allen. Yeah. Um, you know. So I I totally get. It. It's not like I don't get it. I'm just like I'm just like why isn't why is fucking Orson Welles deciding to sit his fat ass on little Woody Allen's face in 1973 or wherever. But I feel like he was bitter. He was bitter. Um, he was so but bitter. But also, like, okay, for a man, when it comes to getting fat, I feel like a lot of really brilliant people have this void that they need to feel, and it's like uh, to fill, and it's either food or sex, and in a lot of cases, it's food. Like Marilyn Brando got really fat by the end of his life. To Lana Del Rey, really fat. Elvis Presley, really fat. So, I just feel like he was he had this void that he needed to feel fulfill and that's why he became so fat so i get it but also for a man of his stature like he had a big large head he was extremely tall he was um an extrovert and he was also anglo-saxon and for him to look at somebody like um woody allen who's like tiny and nebbish and like neurotic i would feel a certain type of visceral disgust too but it's not fair because it's a it's a biological difference. It's like I know I mean I know the Orson Welles appetite very well. Not personally, I don't have it, uh, but but I know people who have the same appetite. We both know people who have the same kind of impulse. Uh, they cannot you cannot compare a, a normal skinny person, and I just use that as yeah. a catch all for everyone who doesn't have this overwhelming appetite to consume everything in their sight. Uh, that is something that some small percentage of people have. It's very highly correlated with genius. It's very yes. highly correlated with major artistic ambition because everything is like, if you if you're going to control that appetite, that that has to be channeled somewhere else. And so it's actually 
a very it's re, it's a it's a curse for many, but it's a gift as well, especially if it's matched with talent. And so he, it certainly wasn't his case. So the fact that he didn't have self the, enough self control to prevent from becoming nine hundred pounds is definitely a failure of character on his part, even though it's a biological thing that got him on that direction. Like he had he had the world at his in his at his fingertips, and he became he he, he had challenges and obstacles because he had a vision that was uh, difficult for Hollywood to deal with, um, conflictual. Uh, I don't know if that's a word, but some some Arma once said, and it's always been in my mind, conflictual. It was a very, <laughs> he was a, it was a very confrontational kind of, you know, he had battles to fight and he fought yeah. some and he won some, but he got sloppy way too early at the age of like 25 going off to, oh, by the way, this is so relevant. That, that motherfucker goes off to Brazil to shoot some fucking documentary while his magnificent Ambersons is being chopped away in Hollywood. He was, he was MIA. He was in Brazil. What are you doing in Brazil? We were just having this conversation in the group chat, group chat <laughs> yesterday where everyone's bitching about Brazil. What the fuck are you doing in Brazil? Why is anybody in Brazil? To- Why are you in Brazil? Hey, if you're not Brazilian, what are you doing in Brazil? Get the fuck out of Brazil. Come back to Hollywood to where you fucking belong and battle it out with the studios to save your goddamn footage. Don't give me this bullshit for the next 30 years uh, uh, about how Hollywood screwed you. You were off in Brazil. You deserved it. Sure. Citizen Kane is probably one of the best movies ever made. Absolutely. Um, I love it. Yes. As a first, I love Citizen Kane. It's the first, uh, no, it's the second most, it's the second old, no, no, it's not the, whatever. It's one of the earliest classic movies I ever watched in ninth grade. I'd seen Hitchcock, mm-hmm. loved Hitchcock. I'd seen Double Indemnity in the same yeah. class. Then we watched Citizen Kane. I was in. I was all in with Citizen Kane. I've seen it a bazillion times. Yeah. But Woody Allen was not the only one. He said a lot of awful things about. He said a lot of awful things about Bergman. Um, there were a lot of directors on on his hit list. I feel like he was just really bitter at the end of his life. Yeah, I, and again, and, I like shit talking. I like, I, you, as you know, I love to talk shit myself. I like to hear. I like it when yeah. I like the Hollywood cigar chomping shit talking vibe. Love it. Yeah. I just felt like in his case, it was a rev. It was a moment of. You know, peeking behind the Orson Welles curtain, a curtain he knows so well as a magician. You know, he knows how to work that curtain. But we saw behind it when he's bitching a little bit too much about Woody Allen in that stage of the game. And a little too gracelessly. Because, you know, you can do it, you know, like a perfect example of this is, I mean, this is something that, you know, uh, our friend Anna is a master of. She's a master of talking shit gracefully. and, And in a way that also grants people their 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 uh uh good qualities and what they're you know gives them credit where it's due i guess and it's just missing from orson welles and if he's woody allen's rival 23 or whatever you know woody allen is i'm all i'm totally good cool with it like that's it's a very common thing for rivals to shit talk each other but he's an elder and he's an, he's big enough to eat Woody Allen for appetite. Woody Allen wouldn't even be a fill, fulfilling appetizer for him. Like you have to be a little show a little bit of restraint, I think. Go ahead, yeah, and sorry. he is in a way superior because I love Woody Allen. He made tons of great movies. A lot of them are one of my favorites. He's never made Citizen Kane. Of like once you make and once you make something like that, you are somebody superior. So he should have shown a lot of grace. I also feel like it was coming from a position of insecurity and whatever 
I did agree with everything you said about Woody Allen, though. Uh, <laughs> I do too. I didn't agree. I didn't disagree with any of it. I mean, on the on the merits, yeah. like yeah, it's all it's all true. Yeah. I mean, it's just but it, but but the thing is that you can all you can do, play the same game with a lot of people. A lot yeah. of people, you know, almost everyone, you can say, you can even look at Citizen Kane and come up with a, come up with a, you know, you, the, 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 the critique you always hear about Citizen Kane is how cold and detached it is. Um, and which I don't give a shit. I'm like, shut up when I hear that critique. But you can make the case. You make the case yeah. that it's not an emotionally um, uh, arresting movie. And, and you can do that with almost anyone's style vision voice you can say you know bob dylan's a phony you can say uh you know you can call orson wells an over an over affected magician ultimately and not a magician yeah. not a truth not a story not a not a a magician more than an artist you could say of orson wells very easily and you can say yeah. that you can always strip you can always strip people people's work of their grace People do that with Fellini nowadays. It's like one of the greatest directors that ever lived. And nowadays the critics are like, he was probably overrated for his time. I'm like, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, so I, gay to do that. It's, 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 you know, when you have a, when you have like this uh, 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 living, breathing, cultural, salon going on where you know when you're vienna in the 1890s and when you're uh uh you know new york paris. in the 1920s and paris into this and that you can uh, all these things are fun warfare yeah. you know verbal warfare i like it all i love those societies but when you're living in the present day and the present day stretches back now for several years yeah you do not like the crit to to, to start Revi yeah. revising the greatness of people who are so much better than your little fucking pea brain, the little bullshit, yeah. fake diversity uh, uh, artists you're pro you're propelling in the modern day uh, ahead of more talented people. You do not give yourself shit about Fellini. You have nothing to say. Yeah, there's nothing you are allowed to say about Fellini, uh, Hitchcock, uh, Truffaut, Wells. Godard, any of them. You can you can make. Make an intelligent point about their limitations or their gifts or whatever, but do yeah. not do not start a fucking trend of trying to tell me that they're overrated. Don't say they're overrated. Yeah. Tell me what's wrong with them in your opinion. That's fine, but but don't tell me they're overrated because you don't have the right to say that. Sorry, shut up. Um, exactly, yeah. and it's like it's like every time you read anything about Fellini, it's like you have to make a point that he was overrated. And he was probably good enough for his time, but not good enough for ours. Um. And I'm like, are you joking? Name one movie that came out in 2000. Okay, 2022 had some good movies. I'll I'll give this here that. But it, like, name one movie in 2021 that was just as good as Dolce Vita, Kabirianized, Syricon, or anything of feeling you ever made. You can't. So if you cannot name any movie that is just as good, you cannot talk shit about one of the greatest directors that ever lived. And it pisses me off. Oh, but what about 12 Years a Slave? <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, and so, it's like you know. So yeah, what about Ava DuVernay? I think he was better than Fellini. She, I think she's better than Fellini. You know, yeah, she it's really like has well, a, if only Fellini was like a black trans femme or whatever. Fellini threw the first brick at Stonewall. We all know this. That was Fellini. <laughs> yeah. So okay, yeah. now let's get back to your love life for a moment. Uh, okay. Let's see where things stand because okay, you you came to West Hollywood. He he was unfaithful or whatever happened. Yeah. You you went back to New York. 
after a few months. Mm -hmm. And then I dated an older man. Then the, older uh, man. the man, the man who loved you more than you've ever been loved. You didn't. Did you yeah, call him daddy? Really did you call him daddy or not? I did. I did. Okay, you I did, did call him daddy. And that's one of the moments that I could relate to in Blonde because I did call him daddy. I do not have daddy issues, I believe, but I did call him daddy because it was just hot. And, mm. um, and, but even he could not put me in my place. I would still dominate sexually and we would just have, um, it was random wild sex in wild random places. Mm. I'll just give you that much. Um, you can't give any more than that. Maybe a, an example of a place. Uh, uh, Russ and daughter's deli when they after they're closed and it's only just you and the stinky fish. Uh, it was restaurants, uh, bathrooms uh, of restaurants, um, cars in the middle of the traffic. Um, you know, yeah, Russian tea room. Things. Uh, could Ever have been. The, could have been the Russian tea room. Moshamoy. Moshamoy. That's where we met Robert Pattinson. Yeah, yeah. No, th yeah, no, that was where we that was no 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 that oh that that's where that was across from Russian Samovar. Was that yes, the yeah, yeah? That was Russian tea room. And I just want to say okay, I'm not gonna say anything bad about Robert Pattinson. What if he ever gets a new podcast? What if I don't know? But what he's not—he's not going to listen to all, the entire catalog. I would imagine if you had, if you wanted to. Talk I would just shit. say that he was totally unimpressive in person. Just physically. Yeah, because I used to have a crush on him as a teenager. Like everybody, you know, everybody watches the vampire movies, and they're like, "Oh, he's so hot!" Blah blah blah. You meet him in person, and it's just like skinny, scared, like English man. Pretty neurotic for an Englishman too. But I gotta say um, though, most most actors come off less impressive in person because first of all, there's no it's hard to come off as impressive as they do in a giant screen, you know, that's meant to glorify them. Yeah. I mean, I met I run into I ran into Jude Law in intermission at a play in London just a few years ago. I, and he's fine. Oh. He's he's actually charming in person. He but he's not like, you know, he's a he's a British balding you know, talkative. He has very active eyes, which is, I think, a very, very good feature to have. Like, he was very animated. He was with a friend at this Bob Dylan musical um, called Girl from the North Country. It's like pseudo-musical, but based on Bob Dylan songs. Mm -hmm. And he was just there with a friend. You know, we were we were getting a drink at the intermission of the play. Um, and, and but he's, you know, not tall. He's not this, this giant gleaming god that that he's sometimes depicted as so you know people it's easy to get disappointed a lot of actors are way shorter than you think way smaller than you think yeah um skinnier than you think too um in brad brad pitt i've seen up close uh, i will say that How the most he up close? you know he was he was he was handsome he's tall he wasn't built like he was just th he was thin at this at least at the time um mm -hmm. he looked older his skin was far older looking than i expected um mm -hmm. uh, and and also old looking skin, but still very elegant and beautiful at that same event is when I saw uh, Cindy Crawford. Cindy Crawford was, she lived up to the billing, I will say in person. Um, okay. So, you know, it just, it's hit or miss really, but it's, but it's very easy to be unimpressed in person by an actor. Cause you're just so primed to see them as this 
giant. Let's give Robert. Let's give Rob, Bobby another chance. We'll see what what he what he does when we invite him to our, uh, our <laughs> you know private party at the at the next time. He seemed, he seemed pretty nice. I'm just gonna say that much. It's just like I expected more because he just did Batman, and I was expecting a you know impressive jawline, muscles, whatever. Did not get that, but um, yeah. Are, okay. Have you? Well, nobody. First of all, it's never too late to acquire daddy issues. I believe, but forget that. You obviously don't have daddy issues, so the daddy aspect isn't all the way there. But yeah, where do you think you got the desire to dominate men? Because I have a theory. But what is your theory? What? Where do you think this 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 fetish came? Not fetish, but this just honestly, this, yeah. I feel like from watching my mom, my mom was older than my dad. Yeah. And from watching their relationship, mm. it was always very nurturing and like, she didn't dominate him per se, but it was, you know, she had an upper hand because she was older. So I think from watching that relationship, it kind of like, that's what I imagined the ideal relationship to be like. The ideal relationship is you Domineering, oh, do, domineering uh, over a poor uh, uh, Armenian exile who's hiding in society because if they find out his what he is, they would kill him, and you're protecting him from this, and also dominating him because he's your subject. Sounds awful. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just trying to figure it out. I'm just trying. I, I don't. What I don't was your, what was your, what was your theory? No, that, that I just said my, <laughs> just said my theory. No, my theory was similarly related to. Um, no, my theory was more like my, not my. It wasn't even a, my theory, but a theory would have been that you're trying to exact revenge on the Azerbaijani people who oppress your, who oppress you. Um, that would mean that I would be attracted to that type. I'm not. And you're not. No, 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 of course not. But, but the, but, but also, you know, it is, po- and I'm not saying, I think you're, you know, your parents, the parental explanation explains everything. There, there's no mystery solved because if you, you, the way you, the way you perceive your parental romance, I think it, your parents' romance is the most important factor by far. So nothing beats that. Um, I personally probably, I think my desires are probably crafted by a desire to punish Turks. I'm not interested. I'm not in, into that type either, but yeah. I do think that, I do think that you can, you know, de- these desires transmute in certain ways. It's like we were, t- it's like I was telling, uh, we had that, I was talk, talk, talking with Anna about this and why Jews are so into Asian women. And it's because they, Asian women remind them of their mothers, but without, but, but like one, Not you know, with, an ancestral. yeah, without looking at, yeah, it's got that, it's got a costume, a little mask on so that you can pretend it's something else. But in fact, deep down, it's the, it's, it's the, the, uh, the domineering Jewish mother energy. And as we know, 90% of people have daddy or mommy issues, depending on which, which side <laughs> they're on. So, so, the, so yeah, so it's like, it's the chow main, it's the chow main, uh, uh, stratagem, let's call it or whatever. I feel like there's two types of Jews. They're nebbish type of Jews, like Woody Allen, Roman Polanski, you know, like short, very neurotic, extremely unattractive. And they're Jews that are like hyper masculine, um, despite their mommy issues. So I feel like the nebbish types are into Asian women. 
because they feel the need to be dominated by somebody who is very similar to their mothers without looking like them. And then there's also a desire for shiksa by hyper-masculine, tall, handsome Jews. Uh, yeah, like there's... Right, right. I mean, you know, yeah, it, I'm sure a lot depends on... Well, that, but that's why, that's why it's so relevant that uh, the uh, Judaism is passed down through the mother. Like, it yeah. makes perfect sense. Yeah, it is passed down through the mother. It, yeah, it's like, yeah, when you're into shiksas, you're rebelling against your mother, like like a blonde shiksa, like Nordic, German type, that would be like a daughter of somebody who was, you know, a guard at... Um, yeah, yeah, it, it's it. There's there's a huge element of I think, um, you know, misdirection in sexual desires too. Like I, I mean, yes. I have it too. You know, we have similar tastes. We have very similar yeah. tastes. I and and I don't have daddy issues or mommy issues. So in my case, it makes perfect sense that I. Well, you're also a child of divorce, right? Oh yeah, big time. How how old are you when that happened? The first time it was well the 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 original rupture is I, I was four years old uh but then it, it but then there was a a de but they but they remained communicative and you know we went we would they, we lived separately and across town and it was a ton of ton of drama between the families over the over those years but they did remain friendly during those years and they communicated and you know come one we, we would go over we would spend christmases together and and uh, not all of them, but some of them, and and we would sometimes mm -hmm. even go on vacation together, and so that was my normal. It was separate but equal. <laughs> let's just say, yeah. you know, segregate. Uh, say good, good old segregation. Um, but then when I was twelve, uh, my my dad my dad finally gave up trying to get my mom back, and there was a and a, he found another woman, and they got very serious with her, and she had a son my age, and so he in the process of he had to get an official divorce finally um, and to marry her. And in that process, it became completely nasty, bitter divorce where they stopped talking to each other for adult period. Uh, so, and that with all that, that entails and all this other family drama was happening at the same time. So I kind of went through it twice <laughs> once, uh -huh. once where it was, it was rough, but tolerable, but still, you know, fundamentally rough. Um, because you never see your parents being lovey-dovey ever. And I've never seen them being lovey-dovey in my life. I have no memory of it. I have a memory of one cold kiss on New Year's Eve. It's like at the age of, I don't know, maybe it was five. And, oh, my God. And, and then it became, and then as I'm hitting puberty and, you know, going through my own, you know, like I, you know, my red-pilled, uh, my wars with society and everything, um, I, I had to endure the this horrible, nasty divorce. And that really fucked fucked me up i mean i got it really 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 complicated my relationship with my dad um that was a major trauma so yeah i'm totally a child of divorce so yeah, yeah. i wanted to yeah i want like i wanted to flee as far away as i but it was a divorce with, with people still in my life it's not like anybody disappeared so i didn't have it wasn't yeah. uh abandonment issues or whatever things that can come up and create you know no 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 it was it was the opposite of that. It was just too much. There was too much family in my in my world. I yeah, yeah. want an escape because from it you all. Had to split your time. Yeah, you had to spend the time between. But strangely enough, but you you were raised by your mother mostly, right? Uh, well, actually, mostly grandmothers. I mean, because my mother was at work till late yeah. hours, and so it was first one side grandmother, 
then the other side grandmother for the most part, who's the one who's still alive. And, and, and then if, you know, I lived with my mom's, the mom's side grandmother after the split. And I would spend Fridays, Saturdays with my dad's side in Hollywood. So I would West side Hollywood. I covered all of LA through my divorce, through my uh, divorced identity. It's like mixed up in my entire relationship with Los Angeles too. But that's why you have such a respect for like strong matriarchal types. The ones who, you know, in let's say just like Italy, Armenia, or any like society that still values strong matriarchs. Oh yeah, they, they were my, um, you know, I basically had three grandmothers because I had my two grandmothers plus uh, my my dad's aunt, which is my, my other grandmother's sister who lived right <laughs> below her. And, you know, they yeah. did everything together. They'd pick me up from school together. We'd drive back on Sunset Boulevard all the way back to Hollywood from Palisades. And... Uh, you know, she was very involved in my life. So I basically had three grand. I, I basically grew up in a Chekhov play. I basically had three cis grandmothers at all times. I was overwhelmed with 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 old matriarchs and women and their opinions and everything. And plus, I had a sister and I have my mother. So I'm just I've had all the women I could handle growing up, and and uh, that had a huge impact on me. So yeah, I, I'm very, you know, I'm very I'm very immune to modern uh you know post matriarchal versions of feminism because i i know what like women i know that i know what women were like in the before time and i know how they think about each other and i know how and that's and what are, Talia says too and people are like always oh, like she hates women i'm like no she just knows women and yeah she, she just knows, knows women <laughs> and she knows when they're the happiest because like i feel like a lot of women in the third world like a developing world have more power as they age which is something that is missing from the western and that's why that's a source of anxiety for many western women too and uh like in developing world when you're a matriarch of a large family but by the time you're like 60 whatever 70 years old you have like an entire army of men willing to do all your bidding uh do die for you do anything you want them to do you have daughters-in-law you can boss around so that's enormous source of power and oh, you yeah. also and you, your husband is not going to leave it because that's not culturally appropriate whatever in the west and that's why i'm more like i'm so misogynistic i'll give you that but i'm more sympathetic towards women because i know where the source of anxiety is coming from and i cannot blame them entirely because they were born into this culture. Like if your parents tell you, all you have to do is just go to college. You don't have to get married early. It doesn't matter. You see like your parents getting divorced. You kind of, that's what you are. Like, you know, you're kind of like, that's what you know. And a lot of source of anxiety for a lot of women in the West is just losing power as, as you age, which a lot of women in the West do lose power as they age. They do lose power as they age, but they there's another problem i think and it's it's as you said you referred to it earlier they they lose they they lose power they they because they're basically they're sacrificing that power in their life decisions and the way that they kind of conduct their lives the power they they derive the power that women derive is through motherhood mm-hmm. this is the ultimate tyranny of all it's mother nature is the grandest cunt of them all. Like there's no one more powerful than mother nature. There's no one more powerful over anyone's life than their mothers, grandmothers, you know, no matter 
how toxically masculine they are. The more toxically masculine they are, the more dominant, <laughs> the more fucking submissive they are to their to their to the women. Napoleon was obsessed with his mother, and that's the man who conquered the half of the world. Exactly. Like, yeah. And and it's that- and it's so obvious. I mean, as you know, I'm very involved uh, in Armenia. I've been very involved with their uh, with their political battles and so forth. And I've yeah. seen. I've seen the most powerful people of the land, you know, be help, be be speechless before the glare of a random Armenian grandmother. It's just like it's so it's so over. Once you see it, you can't unsee it, and you yeah. can't go back and say, "Well, yeah, if I only have a few more business lunches, uh, I'm going to make like that's that's really what I need to do." No, I mean, motherhood is the source of power. That doesn't mean you need to become a mother. That doesn't mean you need to do shit. You just got to understand reality. So I think that what happens is this yeah. extremely uh this extremely overfeminized society of America which 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 values girls way higher than boys, uh yeah. coddles them, uh caters to their every whim, uh and and yeah. and similarly with women like Kate takes every one of their desires to be supreme. Well, when those desires are a diversion from motherhood and from the responsibilities and the sacrifices that it entails, shit yeah. go, hits the fan. So what you have is a bunch of fucking women who are entering their th- mid-30s or later, 40s, yeah. and they still think that the number one thing that they need to do is seek happiness. And it's just yeah. like, this is not a reality. This is like, what is seeking? Ha- you're an adult. Who, who's seeking happiness? If you're an adult and you're not, yeah. and you're not seeking something more, tan- more like tangible, whether that's a a family, whether that's uh, you know, whatever it is, it yeah. shouldn't be this. It shouldn't just be like happiness is a is a, is an is an happiness is like it's like a it's like a a spiritual outcome of something it's that's already. Name. It's like there's something that you feel in the moment, and then it's gone. And then you love this reality of life. It's not real. It's a yeah. It's yeah. A, it's a spiritual condition where you. Achieved, I think, ultimately through discipline. Like, yeah, because because ultimately we're all gonna die. Yeah. Right? Spoiler alert! I, 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 and I also feel like okay, feminism was created for certain type of women. Okay, Amy Vax, right? Like, I listened to Amy Vax. She has you know a Harvard degree in medicine, and then she has a Columbia degree in law. There's certain type of women that are so impressive that they deserve to have careers. Women also make phenomenal writers. There are a lot of great female writers that I admire that I feel like would not have had the careers that they had if it wasn't for you know, certain rights that they were granted. However, most women are not built for that life. I'm sorry, the only way you're achieving your lasting legacy is by having children. And you're able to give birth. You're able to give life. Why would you give that away? The reason why men created so much throughout history is because they wanted to to do it without actually being able to give birth. You know what I mean? It's a way to get out of the fucking house. I'd rather create a. I'd rather conquer a nation than have to s- listen to this old battle axe chew my ear out every. It's like yeah, it's like a, it's it's yeah. it's like a, it's a it's a it's part of, it's a part of staying alive for men that it isn't for women. Women don't need to go con- don't need to go build something in order to feel valuable. Men do. Like men, yeah. men who can no longer for whatever reasons can no longer like you know, go around and fuck. Um, yeah. because they're either too tired or whatever, because they're married, because they're faith, whatever it is. At some point, you know that part slows down. Yeah, 
it's, it, you should try to keep it up. I believe it's good advice to maintain horniness. But I mean, eventually, you need to channel yeah. it to some other horniness has to be channeled to some other uh, yeah. aims. And I think that's what keeps men alive. Like the minute the minute and this happens a lot, like the first thing that 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 wives are trained, American women are trained to do is to cut men off from their male friends, cut men off from their camaraderie and their brotherhood, and ultimately cut men yeah. off from their ambitions, because it's got to be all about little Johnny and Susie now. And it's and it's a very unwise move, because it's yeah. wise in the sense that it, ta- it, it neuters them. But it's like, yeah. it makes them miserable, because men need to have conquests of various kinds on the horizon for them and so long as tom they're able to get brady out of the house that's why tom brady is getting a divorce because she's trying to get him away from something that he's very passionate about and she wants him to be around the family but there should be separate interests like there have there to should, be there have to be otherwise you're just not fully fulfilled and that's what a lot of that's what a lot of western women don't understand they don't um, and and, they, and others do i mean i've you know i see it and there's a much more chill uh situation in in more uh, old school countries when it comes to this stuff um but a lot of western women want to cash castrated adonis like if you like i remember i tweeted something that said that um if you want to be actually with a success successful male who has a career not ugly He's probably going to cheat on you at some point. Right. They want what they want is they want a uh, they want a a Herschel Walker who acts like Christian Walker. But no, (laughs) that doesn't work. (laughs) If you're gonna you 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 got to take Herschel Walker. You got to take it with the the full package. You know, uh, you can't get you can't just like uh, a la carte take the take the the parts you want from Herschel and then add them to the parts from Christian. It doesn't work. Yeah, and women don't understand it. Like they're like, no, I want a good-looking, handsome, rich husband who never cheats, on, who never cheats on me. I'm like, it doesn't happen. What yeah. are you talking about? I want a super about? ambitious. I want a super ambitious, kick-ass husband who stays home all day and like makes you know talks about magazine, talks about Hulu with me. And it's like, well, no, <laughs> you're you're gonna get Toby. You're gonna get Toby <laughs> with a, who's got a, that's sh- the you know who like who. Uh, uh, an in Toby the incel is who you're going to end up with if that's what you're desiring. That's what they lower your expectation, ladies. Lower your expectations, and you'll be happier. Uh, How are you going to lower your expectations now, Moshe? Because we have a yeah. situation here, both of us. But I, for me, it's a little bit easier to understand. I think, or whatever. The, who cares yeah. about me? But you've got this desire where you need to dominate uh, uh, Vikings. And, yeah. and, and you, you know, you start, you're, you can, you easily talk yourself into how something is going to lose steam and you're in a position where you want to settle down, but you find it as difficult as ever. What do we need to do <laughs> to, what are we going to do here? What do we need to do to, to, uh, cross the Rubicon of, uh, romantic commitment here for, for you? <laughs> Um, so like I said, I do not believe that human beings are homogenous. I mean, I mean, um, I do not believe that human beings are monogamous. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't believe in human monogamy. I don't think I can maintain, uh, I can be, you know, loyal to one person for the rest of my life. I just don't see myself as somebody who is capable of doing it because again, I am very visually oriented. I see a beautiful person. I want to fuck a beautiful person. 
my ideal marriage would be with somebody who I don't want a poly relationship, obviously. Like that's not something that would work for me. I think all poly people are ugly. I don't want to be necessarily um maybe a swing. Well, whatever. Like I feel like somebody who shares the same sexual appetite as me, uh same sexual attractions as me would be a perfect match. So me. Yes, exactly. Right. So okay. Yeah. Makes sense to me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's, I mean, listen, uh, the 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 Garden of Allah. Do you know about the Garden of Allah? The the, uh, the there's a, a Azimo. Uh, what's her name? Uh, there's this lesbian named Azimovata. I fuck. I'm fucking up her name. But she basically yeah. she basically st- founded this basically a, this artist's colony in on Sunset Boulevard, uh, where where. Uh, close to where the Chateau Marmont now is and um, right across the street from it actually. And, and it was basically like where all most of anyone you can name lived there a considerable amount of time um, huh. one, during all, including all the great writers, Hemingway, Fitzgerald and stuff. And they were fucking each other. And, and there was all kinds of like, and it was a safe haven for homosexuality, bisexuality. She was a lesbian silent movie star who uh-huh. just, just div- just plowed through all the great all the starlets who came through there like she was about you know it's what's one of the great like uh, uh hollywood locations of all time it doesn't exist anymore it's like a fucking mm-hmm. bank now but but it's one of the great you know the the the, the great uh, uh legends which was real um and it's it's kind of like that you need like a, a tradi- you're looking for a traditional hollywood bisexual arrangement is what you're looking for yeah one of the like eve babbitts like affairs was like um you know bisexual man where you kind of um have the same sexual appetites and you're okay with it yeah and 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 that's why another thing that's why another reason why blonde made me think of you is because of that three-way in the beginning which was a very (laughs) babbitsy very hollywood scenario or i was like let's I could... just say let's just say i do have somebody uh, like um uh you know like I, I i have somebody who is like that in my life right now but um i'll, I'll tell you like in private okay yeah but um in general yeah that would be that would be a perfect um uh, way to move forward for me personally because again like scarlett johansson I do not believe that human beings are monogamous by nature. I think people make sacrifices to raise children. And that's what happened throughout human history. Mm -hmm. You kind of like give up on certain things and you could give up on your sexual desires to be able to raise children. But it doesn't mean that your marriage is perfectly happy. And when people bring up 50s, I'm like, do you understand what people, like what women, why feminism happened in general? Women were bored. They were uh, lonely. They had to send their husband and children to school. I mean, their, their children to school and their husband to work. And that's why feminism happened. Human beings, again, are not monogamous. Well, have, feminism happened because there were some very, uh, there were some very, I think there were some antsy Jewish women who wanted to, uh, who, uh, it, feminism was basically invented by Jewish women. This current wave of feminism, I mean, yes, Betty Friedan. Because they, they, they were mad at their dads because they were, you know, more likely to allow their brothers, who very often were less talented than them, to have careers. 
yeah, they wanted to prove themselves to daddy and, and, uh, they did. They, 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 they made the, um, I think this is, a, I think this is a, like something that, um, Anna talks about a lot is like yeah. how, how the, how it was such a, it was like the ultimate, it was like the ultimate Jewish striver move of the, of the daughters of middle-class Jewish men in the, in the 1950s. Um, uh, <laughs> it's like, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it always comes back to the Jews and, and then there's the question of, you know, now we know based on your, based on your morality. Yeah. Now we know why fucking Turks call, call you and think you're an infidel. <laughs> this is what they're trying to, this is what they're trying to eradicate. Yes. Now exactly. I understand. Now I understand it all. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> fuck the Turks. Fuck the Azeris. Um, fuck. Them. I really, yeah, I really despise the entire nation, and I have like a lot of personal reasons to despise them. I still have some family left there. They're mostly on the Russian side of the, my family, and uh, they all want to get out. Like, like this current war is turning normal people who live in Azerbaijan against the government because even they know it's wrong, but they can just. Right. They, they, so this, what's happening now is, is our Azerbaijan reignited the war last month, now attacking Armenia proper, which yeah. they're always, their excuse was always that in, in invading Karabakh, they're taking, it's their own land. So they can, they have a right to invade it, yada, yada. And yeah. of course the now world, the world allowed Armenia. it. Now they're attacking Armenia proper. At least 300 Armenians have died. Uh, uh, they, they, there was a, the most recent shocking video. There was a beheading of a woman video last week. This week, uh, a whole squadron of Armenian soldiers who had surrendered and laid down their arms and were kneeling were summarily executed by, uh, by Azerbaijani uh, by the Azerbaijani uh, uh, soldiers in the field. And that video has been now seen by everyone. Um, the hatred continues. The pledges of allegiance to drink blood of Armenians continues. There are videos of that all over the place as well. Yeah. It's like the literally the most racist, brutally racist country on earth. Not the fun kind of racism that we all like. Fun racism, yeah. as I've always said, is the the enemy of racism isn't anti-racism. The enemy of racism is fun, ra funny racism because that's what brings okay. us together. That's what makes us like each other. This is brutal, bloodthirsty. Yeah. Ethnic hatred manipulated by a crackpot dictator to main, to remain in power and and lapped up and in in a manner that really does keep up. I mean, you know, I don't I don't like to for all for all of everything. I'd like to believe that there is a world in which even Azeris, Turks, and Armenians can at least passively get along. In without without worry of being beheaded in the middle of the fucking night, and I'd yeah. like to believe that's possible. It is not possible. While a fucking uh, dictator is permitted, encouraged, and even funded to cultivate a nation of of absolute ra racially hateful maniacs. Which is yeah. what's happening in Azerbaijan right now, and this is the state we're dealing with. If you think that Russia or Ukraine or any of these fucking or North Korea or anyone is yeah. beyond the pale, this is as bad as it humanly gets. This is everything that we were supposed to learn uh, from the 1930s to avoid during, forever during, is, ha is is happening right now in that fucking country, and they're threatening Armenia and they're trying to take all everything they possibly want 
through aggressive threat of constant war in tandem with Turkey. This is yeah. their negotiating tactic and this is their diplomatic strategy. And it's been and it's gone on too fucking far unless you are cool with seeing uh, the the little Armenian infidels wiped off the fucking map. It's it's really gone on too far. This is it drives me crazy that rabbis and and American journalists are going on nice little trips to Baku saying, "Ooh, what a lovely place." Oh, it is a little weird how much they hate Armenians, but mm, what is Armenia doing with in Azerbaijan anyway? Fuckers are trying not to get slaughtered and cut in their sleep. Can you imagine telling the people in Nagorno-Karabakh that they need to live under Aliyev, the, the person yeah. that you grew up under? Like, imagine telling the 200,000 no people there. Who would have no problem genociding them? I am oh. telling you, they have genocidal hatred of, of Armenians. Like, every day you turn on the TV, somebody will tell you that Armenians are dogs. They're subhuman. They're not really, like, somebody who is worth... Uh, you know, like they're not somebody who's worth of life. And that's the rhetoric that is happening every day on Azeri television. And you want to tell me that if that Armenian people should be okay with being ruled by fucking Azeris who have genocidal hatred of them. And when one of them kills them in the sleep with an axe, the entire nation celebrates them. You really think they think that they need to be – they do not have a right to their own land because of Stalin's geopolitical uh, machinations 100 years ago and that they this that this land belongs to fucking uh, the, the Aliyev family. That is the opinion of the current world order. Great. Great. Yeah. Can you please fuck wake the fuck up, uh, people? I don't nobody know Nobody cares it, about Christians in the Middle East. Nobody, no, nobody cares does. That's true. Christians in Central Asia. Like nobody gives – gives gives a fucking shit and as somebody who grew up with it and like saw how america got involved with like bosnian conflict i'm like there was there were armenian grandmothers being burned alive during baku pogroms and nobody gave a fucking shit they just let it happen but they got involved in bosnia they got involved in bosnia very eagerly and with great moral uh with great moral righteousness yeah. yeah, it's rough. It's rough. We're a long way from a hundred years ago when the most uh, the the biggest fundraising campaign in American history was to yeah. save the starving Armenians. The Red Cross raised a billion dollars. Uh, yeah. I think in in real money of that time, a billion. If I'm not mistaken, not not the equivalent of a billion. A billion in 1920s money uh, to to help Armenian refugees and uh, exile and and orphans in 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 the Near East uh, as a, after the genocide. I mean, One thing that pisses me off that we cannot even get the dignity of like having a closure over what happened to our people, and it drives me mad. You know, I'm not an ethnic narcissist necessarily. I always really get ethnic narcissism. I always really against when it comes to African-Americans or Jews. I feel like we're all Americans. We should be able to assimilate. But when it comes to this, it makes my blood boil that we cannot still get a fucking closure. Nobody even ask, is asking for reparations. We're just asking for fucking acknowledgement and we cannot fucking get that. It's because the Turkish state is founded on a lie, and they're too insecure to. Um, they're obviously just too insecure to do even something as inexpensively just as acknowledge what happened and make some minor 
uh, offerings of of you know reparations is such a loaded term because there's you know, everyone has that's the thing is there's so much land that is literally still owned on paper by deed by our, the Armenians who were driven. You can find your grandfather's house most of the time, and there's often there's a. You don't even want that. Nobody's going well. Nobody's getting that. But a little bit of, you know, but a bit of diplomatic, um, a little bit of diplomatic peace offering is, would probably go a long way, not to mention actual acknowledgement and, and uh, an uncomplete acknowledgement historically, which the entire world has, has seen the importance of when it came to the Holocaust and Germany still pays reparations to this day. Uh, and, and it's like, well, the narcissism, okay, ethnic narcissism is when you're, when you're exclusive about your grievances, your injustices, whatever. When you, when you're, when you, when you, when you're false about them, that's the narcissism part. The narcissism part is saying that the Holocaust is the only genocide that ever occurred, or you know, slavery is the only thing that ever happened in, that, that that's ever happened in America, and yeah. that's where that's the narcissistic element. Being honest about your history and the reason why your country right now is so beleaguered, so poor, so yeah. cut off from the rest of the world and so subject to continual slaughter by Turkic people. Like it's yeah. literally happening right now in the most Even gruesome fucking way. Syria, we could have been not Turkic people, but we could have been slaughtered too as Armenians. Well, we've Christians. already been driven out of Syria because because of the the uh, the the war on the war on Aleppo. Has already yeah. driven the hundred thousand Armenians who lived there up until five years ago out yeah. of Syria. Thankfully, a lot of them have ended up in Armenia and have added a lot of good food to Armenia because Armenia, as we know, the YANs don't know how to cook. It's the IANs <laughs> who know how to cook, and the I, a lot of IANs have opened up restaurants in Armenia thanks to Syria being shellacked. So there's some good to that, but um, but but still, despite all of it, it's like. You know, it's we're in the same fucking it's still boat. So the fear of being, yeah, it's and I just feel like Christians in the Middle East are fucking cursed, and nobody cares about our plight. I don't want to sound like a whiny little bitch. I really don't, but I feel like all I want at this point is just a closure and having an acknowledgement that this happened to our people, and from there, there could be diplomatic solutions moving forward. After we get the acknowledgement, yeah, that's been the that's been the big the biggest holdup. I mean, Germany and Israel are fine right now. Whew, they're back to they're practically uh, uh, polka partners. They're practically tango partners. They they and love each other. It could be done, but not without an acknowledgement. We need to, like I want to get because without an acknowledgement, those things can happen again. And well, they are I, happening again. <laughs> they're happening again. They're happening they're right happening now. Again. And that's why something that Carlin said which I don't always agree with him, but Carlin said that Russia and Ukraine is different because Russians still see Ukrainians as fundamentally the same people. They would not, like, even if Russia won the war, they would not genocide the Ukrainians that live there. That's not going to happen with our people. They do not see us the same people. They see us as subhumans. They see us as dogs. And that's what I'm telling you as somebody who grew up there and saw it every day being told on television by my teachers by everyone I was surrounded with, it's going to be really ugly. And Armenia needs help. Thank you for joining me tonight, Moshe. Thank you. I I am a little tipsy, so if I sound a little <laughs> no, I think we had a. I think we were able to keep our spirits up despite the 
ooziness of the uh, subject matter. Yeah. My favorite Russian I, word is ooziness. By the way. Ooziness. Oh, ooziness. Yeah, which is is uh, exactly what's going on with Armenians right now, and I hope we're able to um, get more attention to the subject. And uh, I just feel like my our diaspora needs to get its shit together. Let's yeah. pray for less Ujus times ahead. Let's pray for less Ujus and Ujus. for Armenian. Yeah, Ujus. <laughs> oh. Good night okay. and good night, safe sweetie. Now you masters of war. You that build all other guns. You that build the dead planes. You that build the big bomb. that hide behind walls You that hide behind desks Just want you to know that I see through your masks You that never done nothing but build to destroy You play with my world Like it's your little toy Put a gun in my hand And you hide from my eyes and turn and run farther when the fast bullets fly like the Judas of old you lie you Can be one you want me to believe, but I see through your eyes, and I see through your brain, like I see through the waters that run down. Fasten the triggers For the others to fire And sit back and watch When the death count gets higher You hide in your mansion The young people's blood flows 
arms out of their bodies and buried in the mud. Well, that's the worst fear that can never be hurled. Fear to bring children. Into the world Threatening my baby Unborn and unnamed Oh, you ain't worth the blood That runs in your I know to talk out of turn you might say that I'm young you might say I'm unlearned but there's one thing I know Though I'm younger than you Even Jesus would never forgive what you do